Tonight, I'd like to read to you from my favorite book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Chapter 1. The Howl, Resurrection of the Wild Woman, La Loba, the Wolf Woman. I must reveal to you that I am not one of the divine who march into the desert and return gravid with wisdom. I have travelled many cook fires and spread, spread angel bait around every sleeping place. But more often than the getting of wisdom, I have gotten indelicate episodes of Gardesis equally and amoebic dysentery. Such is the fate of a middle-class mystic with delicate intestines. Whatever wisdom or notion I espied on my travels to odd places and unusual people, I sheltered. I learned to shelter, for sometimes old father academe like Kronos still has an inclination to eat the children before they can become either curative or astonishing. That sort of over-intellectualization obscures the patterns of the wild woman and the inst instinctual nature of women. So to further our kinship relationship with the instinctual nature, it assists greatly if we understand stories as though we are inside them rather than as though they are outside us. We enter into a story through the door of inner hearing. The spoken story touches the auditory nerve which runs across the floor of the skull into the brainstem just below the pons. I went across and looked on the meaning of pons. Pons is a band of nerve fibers linking the medulla oblongata and the cerebellum with the midbrain. <coughs> there Auditory impulses are relayed upward to consciousness or else it is said to the soul, depending on the attitude with which one listens. <clears throat> I hope you get my drift. Ancient dissection ancient dissectionists spoke of the auditory nerve being divided into three or more pathways deep in the brain. They surmised that the ear was meant, therefore, to hear at three different levels. One pathway was said to hear the mundane conversations of the world. A second pathway apprehended learning and art. The third pathway existed so the soul itself might hear guidance and gain knowledge while here on earth. Listen then with soul hearing now. For that is the mission of story. Bone by bone, hair by hair, wild woman comes back through night dreams, through events half understood and half remembered. Wild woman comes back. She comes back through story. I began my own immigration across the United States in the 1960s looking for a settling place that was dense with trees fragrant with water and populated by the creatures I loved bear, fox, snake, eagle, wolf. <clears throat> 
The wolves were being systematically exterminated from the upper Great Lakes region. No matter where I went, the wolves were being hounded in one way or another. Although many spoke of them as menaces, I always felt safer when there were wolves in the woods. Out west in the north in those times, you could camp and hear the mountains and forests sing, sing, sing at night. But even there, the age of scope rifles, jeep-mounted clay lights and arsenic treats caused an age of silence to creep over the land. Soon the Rockies were almost empty of wolves. That is how I came to the great desert, which lies half in Mexico, half in the United States. And the further south I traveled, the more stories I heard about wolves. You see, it is told that there is a place in the desert where the spirit of women and the spirit of wolves meet across time. I felt I was onto something when in the Texas borderlands I heard a story called Loba Girl about a woman who was a wolf who was a woman. Next I found the ancient Aztec story of orphan twins being breastfed by a she-wolf till the children were old enough to stand on their own. And finally, from the old Spanish land-grant farmers and Pueblo people of the southwest, I heard stories about the bone people, the old ones, who bring the dead back to life. They were said to restore both humans and animals. Then on one of my own ethnographic expeditions, I met a bone woman, and I have never been quite the same since. The stories of the bone people persisted no matter where I travelled. Bone people's stories came in many shapes. La Loba is one. <coughs> so here is the La Loba story, as told by Clarissa Pinkola Estes and narrated by yours truly, Dipali Parmar. There is an old woman who lives in a hidden place that everyone knows but few have ever seen. As in the fairy tales of Eastern Europe, she seems to wait for lost or wandering people and seekers to come to her place. She is circumspect, often hairy, always fat, and especially wishes to evade most company. She is both a crower and a cackler, generally having more animal sounds than human ones. They say she lives among the rotten granite slopes in Tarahamuri, in Tarahumara, Indian Territory. They say she is buried outside Phoenix near a well. She is said to have been seen travelling south to Monte Alban in a burnt-out car with the back window shot out. She is said to stand by the highway near El Paso or ride shotgun with truckers to Morelia, Mexico, or that she has been sighted walking to market above Oaxaca with strangely formed boughs of firewood on her back. She is called by many names, La Husera, Bone Woman, La Trapera, The Gatherer, and La Loba, Wolf Woman. <coughs> The sole work of La Loba is the collecting of bones. She is known to collect 
and preserve especially that which is in danger of being lost to the world. Her cave is filled with the bones of all manner of desert creatures, the deer, the rattlesnake, the crow, but her speciality is said to be wolves. She creeps and crawls and sifts through the montanas, mountains and arroyos, dry riverbeds, looking for wolf bones. And when she has assembled an entire skeleton, when the last bone is in place and the beautiful white sculpture of the creature is laid out before her, she sits by the fire and thinks about what song she will sing. And when she is sure, she stands over the creatura, raises her arms over it and sings out. That is when the rib bones and leg bones of the wolf begin to flesh out and the creature becomes furried. Laloba sings some more and more of the creature comes into being. Its tail curls upward, shaggy and strong. And Laloba sings more and the wolf creature begins to breathe. And still Laloba sings so deeply that the floor of the desert shakes and as she sings the wolf opens its eyes, leaps up and runs away down the canyon. Somewhere in its running, whether by the speed of its running or by splashing its way into a river or by way of a ray of sunlight or moonlight hitting it right in the side, the wolf is suddenly transformed into a laughing woman who runs free toward the horizon. So it is said that if you wander the desert and it is near sundown and you are perhaps a little bit lost and certainly tired, that you are lucky for La Loba may take a liking to you and show you something, something of the soul. We all begin as a bundle of bones lost somewhere in a desert a dismantled skeleton that lies under the sand. It is our work to recover the parts. It is painstaking. It is a painstaking process best done when the shadows are right, just right, for it takes much looking. La Loba indicates what we are to look for, the indestructible life force, the bones. This Quinto Milagro, miracle story, La Loba, shows us what can go right for the soul. It is a resurrection story about the underworld connection to Wild Woman. It promises that if we will sing the song, we can call up the psychic remains of the Wild Woman's soul and sing her into a vital shape again. In the tale, La Loba sings over the bones she has gathered. To sing means to use the soul voice. It means to say on the breath the truth of one's power and one's need to breathe soul over the thing that is ailing or in need of restoration. This is done by descending into the deepest mood of great love and feeling, till one's desire for relationship with the wildish self overflows. 
than to speak one's soul from that frame of mind. That is singing over the bones. We cannot make the mistake of attempting to elicit this great feeling of love from a lover, for this women's labour of finding and singing the creation hymn is a solitary work, a work carried out in the desert of the psyche. Let us consider Laloba herself. The symbol of the old woman is one of the most widespread archetypal personifications in the world. Others are the great mother and father, the divine child, the trickster, the sorceress, sorcerer, the maiden and youth, the heroine, warrior, and the fool, fooless. Yet, La Loba is vastly different in essence and effect, for she is the feeder root to an entire instinctual system. In the southwest, she is also known as Old La Ki. Kyusebe, the one who knows. I first of La Kyusebe when I lived in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico under the heart of Lobo Peak. An old witch from ranchos told me that La Kyusebe knew everything about women, that La Kyusebe had created women from a wrinkle on the sole of her divine foot. This is why women are knowing creatures. They are made in a sense of the skin of the soul, which feels everything. This idea that the skin of the foot is sentient had the ring of truth. For an acculturated Kish tribeswoman once told me that she'd worn her first pair of shoes when she was 20 years old and was still not used to walking. Con los ojos vendados with blindfolds on her feet. Hmm. This Laloba wild woman who lives in the desert has been called by many names and crisscrosses all nations down through the centuries. These are some of the old names for her. The mother of days is the mother creator god of all beings and doings, including the sky and earth. Mother Nikes has dominion over all things from the mud and dark. Durga controls the skies and winds and the thoughts of humans from which all reality spreads. Quotalik gives birth to the infant universe which is rascally and hard to control. But like a wolf mother, she bites her, her, ear, her child's ear to contain it. Hekate, the old seer who knows her people, and has about her the smell of hummus and the breath of God. And there are many, many more. These are the images of what and who lives under the hill, far off in the desert, out in the deep. In mythos and by whatever name, La Loba knows the personal past and the ancient past, for she has survived generation after generation and is old beyond time. She is an archivist of feminine intentions. She, she preserves female tradition. She whiskers sense. Her whiskers sense the future. She has the far-seeing milky eye of the old crone. She lives backward and forward in time simultaneously, correcting for one side by dancing with the other. <coughs> 
La Loba, the old one, the one who knows, is within us. She thrives in the deepest soul psyche of women, the ancient and vital wild woman. The La Loba story describes her home as that place in time where the spirit of women and the spirit of wolf meet. The place where her mind and her instincts mingle, where a woman's deep life funds her mundane life. It is the point where the I and the Thou kiss, the place where women run with the wolves. This old woman stands between the worlds of rationality and mythos. She is the knuckle bone on which these two worlds turn. This land between the worlds is that inexplicable place we all recognize once we experience it. But it nuances, its nuances slip away and shape change if one tries to pin them down, except when we use poetry, music, dance or story. There is speculation that the immune system of the body is rooted in this mysterious psychic land and also the mystical as well as all archetypal images and urges including our God hunger, our yearning for the mysteries and all the sacred instincts as well as those which are mundane. Some would say the records of humankind, the root of light, the coil of dark are also here. It is not a void but rather the place of the mist begins where things are and also are not, where shadows have substance and substance is sheer. One thing about this land is certain, it is old, older than the oceans. It, like La Loba, has no age, it is ageless. The wild woman archetype funds this layer, emanates the instinctual psyche, Although she can take many guises in our dreams and creative experiences, she is not from the lair of the mother, the maiden, the medial woman. And she is not the inner child. She is not the queen, the Amazon, the lover, the seer. She is just what she is. Call her Lark, you save. The one who knows. Call her Wild Woman. Call her La Loba. Call her by her her high names or her low names, call her by her newer names or her ancient ones, she remains just what she is. White woman is an archetype, is an inimicable and ineffable force which carries a bounty of ideas, images and particularities for humankind. Archetype exists everywhere and yet is not seeable in the usual sense. What can be seen of it in the dark cannot be seen in daylight. We find lingering evidence of archetype in the images and symbols found in stories, literature, poetry, painting and religion. It would appear that its glow, its voice, its fragrance are meant to cause us to be raised up from contemplating the shit on our tails occasionally traveling in the company of the stars. <laughs> At La Loba's place, the physical body is, as poet Tony Morfiet writes, a luminous animal. And the body's immune system seems to be strengthened or weakened by conscious thought. 
At Lalova's place, the spirits manifest as personages and Lavos mythologica, the mythological voice of the deep psyche, speaks as poet and oracle. Things of psychic value once dead can be revived. Also the basic material of all stories existent in the world ever began with someone's experience here in this inexplicable psychic land and someone's attempt to relate what occurred to them here. There are various names for this locus betwixt the worlds. Jean called it variously the collective unconscious, the objective psyche and the psychoid unconscious, referring to a more ineffable layer of the former. He thought of the latter as a place where the biological and psychological worlds share headwaters where biology and psychology might mingle with and influence one another. Throughout human memory, this place, call it Nod, call it home of the mist, begins, sorry, call it Nod, call it the home of the mist beings, the crack between the worlds, is the place where visitations, miracles, imaginations, inspirations and healings of all natures occur. <clears throat> Though this site transmits great psychic wealth, it must be approached with preparation, for one may be tempted to joyously drown in the rapture of one's time there. Consensuous reality may seem less exciting by comparison. In this sense, these deeper layers of psyche can become a rapture turn, rapture trap, from which people return unsteady with wobbly ideas and airy presentments. That is not how it is meant to be. How one is meant to return is wholly washed or dipped in a rev revivifying and informing water, something which impresses upon our flesh the odor of the sacred. Each woman has potential access to Rio Abajo Rio, this river beneath the river. She arrives there through deep meditation, dance, writing, painting, prayer making, singing, drumming, active imagination or any activity which requires an intense altered consciousness. A woman arrives in this world between worlds through yearning and by seeking something she can see just out of the corner of her eye. She arrives there by deeply creative acts through intentional solitude and by practice of any of the arts. And even with these well-crafted practices, much of what occurs in this ineffable world remains forever mysterious to us, for it breaks physical laws and rational laws as we know them. The care with which this psychic state must be entered is recorded in a small but powerful story of four rabbis who yearned to see the most sacred wheel of Ezekiel in the next episode. The Four Rabbinim One night, four Rabbinim were visited by an angel who awakened them and carried them to the seventh vault of the seventh heaven. 
There they held the sacred wheel of Ezekiel. Somewhere in the descent from Pardes, paradise to earth, one rabbi, having seen such splendor, lost his mind and wandered for frothing and foaming until the end of his days. The second rabbi was extremely cynical. Oh, I just dreamed Ezekiel's wheel. That was all. Nothing really happened. The third rabbi carried on and on about what he had seen, for he was totally obsessed. He lectured and would not stop with how it was all constructed and what it all meant. And in this way he went astray and betrayed his faith. The fourth rabbi, who was a poet, took a paper in hand and a reed and sat near the window writing song after song praising the evening dove, his daughter in her cradle, and all the stars in the sky. And he lived his life better than before. Ah, so beautiful. And then Clarissa explains, Who saw what in the seventh vault of the seventh heaven? We do not know. But we do know that contact with the world wherein the senses reside causes us to know something beyond the usual hearing of humans and fills us with a feeling of expansion and grandeur as well. When we touch the one who knows, it causes us to react and act from our deepest integral nature. The story recommends that the optimal attitude for experiencing the deep unconscious is one of neither too much fascination nor too little, one of not too much awe but neither too much cynicism, bravery yes but not recklessness. Zhang cautions in his magnificent essay The Transcendent Function that some persons in their pursuit of the self will overesthesize the God or self-experience, some will undervalue it, some will overvalue it and some who are not ready for it will be injured by it. But still others will find their way to what Zhang called the moral obligation, to live out and to express what one has learned in the descent or in the descent or ascent to the wild self. This moral obligation he speaks of means to live what we perceive, be it found in the psychic, Elysian fields, the isles of the dead, the bone deserts of La Loba, the face of the mountain, the rock of the sea, the lush underworld, any place where Lark, you say, breathes upon us, changing us. Our work is to show we have been breathed upon. To show it, give it out, sing it out, to live out in the topside world what we have received through our sudden knowings from story, from body, from dreams and journeys of all sorts. La Loba parallels world myths in which the dead are brought back to life. In Egyptian mythos, Isis accomplishes this service for her dead brother Osiris, who is dismembered by his evil brother, set every night. Isis works from dusk to dawn each night to piece her brother back together again before morning, else the sun will not rise. The Christ raised Lazarus, who had been dead so long, he stinketh.
Demeter calls forth her pale daughter Persephone from the land of the dead once a year, and La Loba sings over the bonds. This is our meditation practice as women, calling back the dead and dismembered aspects of ourselves, calling back the dead and dismembered aspects of life itself. The one who recreates from that which has died is always a double-sided archetype. The creation mother is always also the death mother and vice versa. Because of this dual nature or double tasking, the great work before us is to learn to understand what around and about us and what within us must live and must die. Our work is to apprehend the timing of both, to allow what must die to die and what must live to live. For women, Rio Abajo Rio, the river beneath the river world, the born woman home place contains direct knowing about seedlings, rootstock, the seed corn of the world. In Mexico, women are said to carry Luz de la Vida, the light of life. This light is located not in a woman's heart, not behind her eyes, but en los ovarios, in her ovaries where all the seed stock is laid down before she is even born. For men exploring the deeper ideas of fertility and the nature of seed, the cross-gender image is the furry back, the scrotum. This is the knowing to be gained in being close to the wild woman. When La Loba sings, she sings from the knowing of Los Ovarios, a knowing from deep within the body deep within the mind, deep within the soul. The symbols of seed and bone are very similar. If one has the rootstock, the basic, the original part, if one has the seed gone, any havoc can be repaired. Devastations can be re-sown. Fields can be rested. Hard seed can be soaked to soften it, to help it break open and thrive. To have the seed means to have the key to life. To be with the cycles of the seed means to dance with life, dance with death, dance with life again. The wild woman nature of women is the life and death mother in her most ancient form because she turns in these constant cycles. I call her life, death, life, mother. If something is lost, it is she to whom one must appeal, speak with and listen to. Her psychic advice is sometimes harsh or difficult to put into practice, but always transformative and restorative. So when something is lost, we must go to the old woman who always lives in the -the out-of-the-way pelvis. She lives out there, half in and half out of the creative fire. This is a perfect place for women to live, right next to the fertile Huvos, their eggs, their female eggs. There the tiniest ideas and the largest ones are waiting for our minds and actions to make them manifest. This old woman, La Loba, is the quintessential two-million-year-old woman. She's the original wild woman who lives beneath and yet on the top side of the earth. She lives in and through us and we are surrounded by her. The deserts, the woodlands and the earth under our houses are two million years old and then some. I'm always taken by how deeply women like to dig in the earth. They plant bulbs for the spring. They poke 
blackened fingers into the mucky soil transplanting sharp smelling tomato plants i think they are digging down to the 2 million year old woman they are looking for her toes and her paws they want her for a present to themselves for with her they feel of a peace and at peace without her they are, they feel restless many women i have worked with over the years began their first session with some variation of of well well i don't feel bad but i don't feel good either i think that condition is not a great mystery we know it comes from not enough muck the cure la lopa find the 2 million year old woman she's caretaker of the dead and dying of women things she's the road between the living and the dead she sings the creation hymns over the bones the old woman wild woman is lavos mythologica she is the mythical voice who knows the past and our ancient history and keeps it recorded for us in stories sometimes we dream her as a disembodied but beautiful voice as the hag maiden she shows us what it means to be not withered but wizened babies are born wizened with instinct they know in their bones what is right and what to do about it it is innate if a woman holds on to this gift of being old while she is young and young while she is old she will always know what comes next she has lost it she can yet reclaim it with some purposeful psychic work in the la loba story the old one in the desert is a collector of bones in archetypal symbology bones represent the indestructible force they do not lend themselves to easy reduction they are by their structure hard to burn nearly impossible to pulverize in myth and story they represent the indestructible soul spirit <clears throat> we know the soul spirit can be injured even maimed but it is very nearly impossible to kill you can dent the soul and bend it you can hurt it and scar it you can leave the marks of illness upon it and the scorch marks of fear but it does not die for it is protected by la loba in the underworld she is both the fender and the incubator of the bones bones are heavy enough to hurt with sharp enough to cut through flesh and when old and if strung tinkle like glass the bones of the living are alive and creature creatural in themselves they constantly renew themselves a living bone has a curiously soft skin to it it appears to have certain powers to regenerate itself even as a dry bone it becomes home for small living creatures the wolf bones in this story represent the indestructible aspect of the wild self the instinctual nature the creatura dedicated to freedom and the unspoiled that which will never accept the rigors and requirements of a dead or overly civilizing culture the metaphors in this story typify the entire process of bringing a woman to her full instinctual wildish senses within us 
is the old one who collects bones. Within us, there are the soul bones of the wild woman. Within us is the potential to be fleshed out again as the creature we once were. Within us are the bones to change themselves and our world. Within us is the breath and our truths and our longings. Together they are the song, the creation hymn we have been yearning to sing. This does not mean we should walk about with our hair hanging in our eyes or with black ringed claws for fingernails. Yes, we must, we remain human, but also within the human woman is the animal instinctual self. This is not some romantic cartoon character. It has real teeth. A true snarl, huge generosity, unequaled hearing, sharp claws, generous and furry breasts. This wolf woman self must have freedom to move, to speak, to be angry and to create. This self is durable, resilient and possesses high intuition. It is a self which is knowledgeable in the spiritual dealings of death and birth. Today, the La Loba inside you is collecting bones. What is she remaking? She is the soul self, the builder of the soul home. Ella Lo Hase Amano. She makes and remakes the soul by hand. What is she making for you? Even in the best of worlds, the soul needs refurbishing from time to time. Just like the adobes here in the southwest, a little peels, a little falls down, a little washes away. There's always an old round woman with bedroom slipper feet who's patting mud slurry on the adobe walls. She mixes straw and water and earth and pats it back on the walls, making them fine again. Without her, the house will lose its shape. Without her, it will wash down into a lump after a hard rain. La Loba is the keeper of the soul. Without her, we lose our shape. Without an open supply line to her, humans are said to be soulless or damned souls. She gives shape to the soul house and makes more house by hand. She's the one in the old apron. She's the one whose dress is longer in the front than in the back. She's the one who pat-a-pat-pats. She's the soul maker, the wolf raiser, the keeper of things wild. So, imagistically, be you, black wolf, a northern grey, a southern red, or an arctic white. You are the quintessential instinctual Creatura. Although some might really prefer you behave yourself and not climb all over the furniture in joy or all over people in welcome, do it anyway. Some will draw back from you in fear or disgust. Your lover, however, will cherish this new aspect of you if he or she be the right lover for you. Some people will not like it if you take a sniff at everything to see what it is. And for heaven's sakes, no lying on your back with your feet up in the air, bad girl, bad wolf, bad dog. Right? Wrong. Go ahead. Enjoy yourself.
people do medication to find psychic alignment that's why people do psychotherapy and analysis that's why people analyze their dreams and make art that is why many read tarot cards cast i ching dance drum make theater pry out the poem and fire up the prayer that's why we do all the things we do it is the work of gathering all the bones together then we must sit at the fire and think about which song we will use to sing over the bones which creation hymn which recreation hymn and the truths we tell will make the song these are some good questions to ask till one decides on the song one's true song what has happened to my soul voice what are the buried bones of my life in what condition is my relationship to the instinctual self when was the last time i ran free how do i make life come alive again where has laluba gone to in the story the old woman sings over the bones and as she sings the bones flesh out we to become as we pour soul over the bones we have found we to become as we pour soul over the bones we have found as we pour our yearning and our heart breaks over the bones of what we used to be when we were young of what we used to know in the centuries past and over the quickening we sense in the future we stand on all fours four square as we pour soul as we re- are revivified we are no longer a thin solution a dissolving frail thing no we are in the becoming stage of transformation like laloba we so often start out in a desert we feel disenfranchised alienated not connected to even a cactus clump the ancients called the desert the place of divine revelation but for women there is much more to it than that a desert is a place where life is very condensed the roots of living things hold on to that last tear of water and the flower hoards its moisture by only appearing in early morning and late afternoon life in the desert is small but brilliant and most of what occurs goes on underground this is like the lives of many women the desert is not is not lush like a forest or a jungle it is very intense and mysterious in its life forms many of us have lived desert lives very small on the surface and enormous under the ground la loba shows us the precious things that can come from that sort of psychic distribution a woman's psyche may may have found its way to the desert out of resonance or because of past cruelties or because she was not all allowed a large life above ground 
So often a woman feels then that she lives in an empty place where there is maybe just one cactus with one brilliant red flower on it and then in every direction 500 miles of nothing. But for the woman who will go 501 miles, there is something more. A small, brave house. An old one. She has been waiting for you. The house. Some women don't want to be in the psychic desert. Desert. They hate the frailty, the sparseness of it. They keep trying to crank up a rusty jalopy and bump their way down to the road to a fantasized shining shining city of the psyche. But they are disappointed, for the lush and the wild is not there. It is in the spirit world. That world between worlds, Rio Abaju Rio, that river beneath the river. Don't be a fool. Go back and stand under that one red flower and walk straight ahead for that last hard mile. Go up and knock on that old weathered door. Climb up to the cave. Crawl through the window of a dream. Sift the desert and see what you find. It is the only work we have to do. You wish psychoanalytic advice? Mm -hmm. Go gather bones. (laughs) That's it. And tomorrow I will tell you the story from the same book by the same wonderful author, Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And the story's name is Bluebeard. Good night. Good evening. Nothing feeds me like stories do. And if you are like me, let's continue. Chapter 2 Stalking the Intruder, the Beginning Initiation Bluebird In a single human being, there are many other things, all with their own values, motives and devices. Some psychological technologies suggest we arrest these beings, count them, name them, force them into harness till they shuffle along like vanquished slaves. But to do this would halt the dance of wildish lights in a woman's eyes. It would halt her heat, lightning and arrest all throwing of sparks. Rather than corrupt her natural beauty, our work is to build for all these beings a wildish countryside wherein the artists among them can make the lovers love, the healers heal. But what shall we do with these those inner beings who are quite mad and those who carry out destruction without thought. Even these must be given a place, though one in which they can be contained. One entity in particular, the most deceitful and most powerful fugitive in the psyche, requires our immediate consciousness and containment, and that one is the natural predator. While the cause of much human suffering can be traced to negligent fostering, there's also within the psyche, naturally, an innate contra-naturum aspect and against nature force. 
The contra-naturum aspect op opposes the positive. It is against development, against harmony and against the wild. It is a derisive and murderous antagonist that is born into us and even with the best parental nurture, the intruder's sole assignment is to attempt to turn all crossroads into closed roads. <coughs> this predator potente shows up time after time in women's dreams. It erupts in the midst of the, their most soulful and meaningful plans. It severs, severs the woman from her intuitive nature. When its cutting work is done, it leaves the woman deadened in feeling, feeling frail to advance her life, her ideas and dreams lay at her feet, drained of animation. Bluebird is a story of such a matter. In North America, the best-known Bluebird versions are the French and the German, but I prefer this old version in which the French and the Slavic have been mingled. It is close to the one given to me by my aunt Cathy, pronounced Catty, who lived in Sbirk, Sibrok, near Domovar in Hungary, among that cadre of farm woman tellers. Bluebird tale is begun with an anecdote about someone who knew someone who knew someone who had seen the grisly proof of Bluebird's demise. And so we begin. <clears throat> there is a hank of beard which is kept at the convent of the white nuns in the far mountains. How it came to the convent, no one knows. Some say it was the nuns who buried what was left of his body, for no one else would touch it. Why the nuns would keep such a relic is unknown, but it is true. My friend's friend has seen it with her own eyes. She says the bluebird is blue. She says the beard is blue, indigo coloured to be exact. It is a as blue as the dark ice in the lake, as blue as the shadow of a hole at night. This beard was once worn by one who, they say, was a failed magician, a giant man with an eye for women, a man known by the name of Bluebeard. T'was said he courted three sisters at the same time, but they were frightened of his beard with its odd blue cast, so they hid when he called. In an effort to convince them of his geniality, he invited them on an outing in the forest. He arrived leading horses arrayed in bells and crimson ribbons. He set the sisters and their mother upon the horses and off they cantered into the forest. There they had a most wonderful day riding and their dogs ran beside and ahead. Later they stopped beneath a giant tree and bluebird regaled them with stories and fed them dainty treats. The sisters began to think, well, perhaps this man Bluebeard is not so bad after all. They returned home all a chatter about how interesting the day had been and did they not have a good time? Yet the two older sisters' suspicions and fears returned and they vowed not to see Bluebird again. But the youngest sister thought if a man could be that charming, then perhaps he was not so bad after all. <coughs> 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 
The more she talked to herself, the less awful he seemed, and also the less blue his beard. So when Bluebeard asked for her hand in marriage, she accepted. She had given his proposal great thought and felt she was to marry a very elegant man. Marry they did, and after rode off to his castle in the woods. One day he came to her and said, I must go away for a time. Invite your family here if you like. You may ride in the woods, charge the cooks to set a feast. You may do anything you like, anything your heart desires. In fact, here is my ring of keys. You may open any and every door to the storerooms, the money rooms, any door in the castle. But this little tiny key, the one with the scroll work on top, do not use. <coughs> His bride replied, yes, I will do as you ask. It all sounds very fine. So go, my dear husband, and do not have a worry, and come back soon. And so off he rode, and she stayed. Her sisters came to visit, and they were, as all souls are, very curious about what the master had said was to be done while he was away. The young wife gaily told them. He said, we may do anything we desire and enter any room we wish except one, but I don't know which one it is. I just have a key and I don't know which door it fits. The sisters decided to make a game of finding which key fit which door. The castle was three stories high with a hundred doors in each wing and as there were many keys in the ring, they crept from door to door having an immensely good time throwing open each door. Behind one door were the kitchen stores, behind another the money stores. All manner of holdings were behind the doors and everything seemed more wonderful all the time. At last, having seen all these marvels, they came finally to the cellar and at the end of the corridor a blank wall. They puzzled over the last key, the one with the little scroll work on top. Maybe this key doesn't fit anything at all. As they said this, they heard an odd, odd sound. They peeked round the corner and lo and behold, there was a small door just closing. When they tried to open it again, it was firmly locked. One cried, Sister, sister, bring your key. Surely this is the door for that mysterious little key. Without a thought, one of the sisters put the key in the door and turned it. The lock scolded, the door swung open, but it was so dark inside they could not see. Sister, sister, bring a candle. So a candle was lit and held into the room, and all three women screamed at once, for in the room was a mire of blood, and the blackened bones of corpses were flung about, and skulls were stacked in corners like pyramids of apples. They slammed the door shut, shook the key out of the lock and leaned against one another, gasping, breasts heaving. Oh my God! Oh my God! The wife looked down at the key and saw it was stained with blood. Horrified, she used the skirt of her gown to wipe it clean, but the blood prevailed. Oh no! she cried. Each sister took the tiny key in her hands and tried to make it as it once was, but the blood remained. The wife hid the tiny key in her pocket and ran to the cook's kitchen. When she arrived, her white dress was stained red from the pocket to, the, to him, for the key was slowly weeping drops of dark red blood. 
She ordered the cook, quick, give me some horse hair. She scoured the key, but it would not stop bleeding. Drop after drop of pure red blood issued from the tiny key. She took the key outdoors and from the oven she pressed ashes onto it and scrubbed some more. She held it to the heat to sear it. She laid cobweb over it to staunch the flow, but nothing could make the weeping blood subside. Oh, what am I to do? she cried. I know. I'll put the little key away. I'll put it in the wardrobe. I'll close the door. This is a bad dream. All will be all right. And this she did do. Her husband came home the very next morning and he strode into the castle calling for his wife. Well, how is it while I was away? It was very fine, sir. And how are my storerooms? He rumbled. Very fine, sir. How are my money rooms? He growled. Oh, the money rooms are very fine also, sir. So everything is good, wife? Yes, everything is good. Well, he whispered, then you'd best return my keys. With a glance, he saw a key was missing. Where is the smallest key? I, I, I lost it. Yes, I lost it. I was out riding and the key ring fell down and I must have lost a key. What have you done with it, woman? I, I, I don't remember. Don't lie to me. Tell me what you did with that key. He put his hand to her face as if to caress her cheek but instead seized her hair. You infidel. He snarled and threw her to the floor. You've been into the room, haven't you? He threw open her wardrobe and the little key on the top shelf had bled blood, red down all the beautiful silks of her gowns hanging there. <clears throat> now it's your turn, my lady, he screamed and dragged her down the hall and into the cellar till they were before the terrible door. Bluebeard merely looked at the door with his fiery eyes and the door opened for him. There lay the skeletons of all his previous wives and now he roared. But she caught hold of the door frame and would not let go. She pleaded for her life. Please, please allow me to compose myself and prepare for my death. Give me but a quarter hour before you take my life so I can make peace with God. All right, he snarled. You have but a quarter of an hour, but be ready. The wife raced up the stairs to her chamber and posted her sisters on the castle ramparts. She knelt to pray but instead called out to her sisters. Sisters, sisters, do you see our brothers coming? We see nothing, nothing on the open plains. Every few moments she cried up to the ramparts. Sisters, sisters, do you see our brothers coming? We see a whirlwind, perhaps a dust devil in the distance. Meanwhile, Bluebeard roared for his wife to come to the cellar so he could behead her. Again she called out, Sisters, sisters, do you see our brothers coming? <clears throat> Bluebeard shouted for his wife again and began to clomp up the stone steps. Her sisters cried out, Yes, we see them. Our brothers are here and they have just entered the castle. Bluebeard strode down the hall toward his wife's chamber. I am coming to get you, he bellowed. His footfalls were dense, the rocks in the hallway came loose and the sand from the mortar poured into the floor. As Bluebeard lumbered into her chamber with his hands outstretched to seize her, her brothers on horseback galloped down the castle hallway and charged into her room as well. There they routed Bluebeard out onto the parapet. 
There and then with swords they advanced upon him, striking and slashing, cutting and whipping, beating Bluebeard down to the ground, killing him at last and leaving for the buzzards his blood and gristle. The natural predator of the psyche, developing a relationship with the wildish nature is an essential part of women's individuation. In order to execute this, a woman must go into the dark, but at the same time she must not be irreparably trapped, captured, or killed on her way there or back. The Bluebeard story is about that captor, the dark man, who inhabits all women's psyches, the innate predator. He is a specific and incontrovertible force which must be memorized and restrained. To restrain the natural predator of the psyche, it is necessary for women to remain in possession of all their instinctual powers. Some of these are insight, intuition, endurance, tenacious loving, keen sensing, far vision, acute hearing, singing over the dead, intuitive healing, and tending to their own creative fires. In psychological interpretations, we call on all aspects of the fairy tale to help us represent the drama within a single woman's psyche. Bluebeard represents a deeply reclusive complex which lurks at the edge of all women's lives, watching, waiting for an opportunity to oppose her. Although it may symbolize itself similarly or differently in men's psyches, it is the ancient and contemporary foe of both genders. It is difficult to completely comprehend the Bluebeardian force, for it is innate, meaning indigenous to all humans from birth forward, and in that sense is without conscious origin. Yet I believe we have a hint of how its nature developed in the pre-conscious of humans, for in the story, Bluebeard is called a failed magician. In this occupation, he is related to other fairy tales which also portray the malignant predator of the psyche as a rather normative-looking but immeasurably destructive mage. Using this description as an archetypal shard, we compare it to what we know of failed sorcery or failed spiritual power in mytho-history. The Greek Icarus flew too close to the sun and his waxen wings melting, melted, catapulting him to earth. The Zuni myth, the boy and the eagle, tells of a boy who would have become a member of the eagle kingdom, but for thinking who he could break the rules of death. As he soared through the sky, his borrowed eagle coat was torn from him and he fell to his doom. In Christian myth, Lucifer claimed equality with Yahweh and was driven down to the underground. In folklore, there are many number of sorceresses, apprentices, who foolishly dared to venture beyond their actual skill levels or attempted to contravene nature. They were punished by injury and cataclysm. As we examine these lead motives, we see the predators in, their, in them desire superiority and power over others. 
They carry a kind of psychological inflation wherein the entity wishes to be loftier than, as big as, and equal to the ineffable, which traditionally disturbs and controls the mysterious forces of nature, including the systems of life and death and the rules of human nature and so forth. In myth and story, we find that the consequence of an entity attempting to break, bend, or alter the operating mode of the ineffable is to be chastened, either by having to endure diminished ability in the world of mystery and magic, such as apprentices who are no longer allowed to practice, or lonely exiled from the land of the gods, or a similar loss of grace and power through bumbling, crippling, or death. <clears throat> If we can understand the Bluebeard as being the internal representative of the entire myth of such an outcast, we then may also be able to comprehend the deep and inexplicable loneliness which sometimes washes over him, us, because he experiences a continuous exile from redemption. The problem with Bluebeard in the fairy tale is that rather than empowering the light of the young feminine forces of the psyche, he is instead filled with hatred and desires to kill the lights of the psyche. It is not hard to imagine that in such a malignant formation there is trapped one who once wished for surpassing light and fell from grace because of it. We can understand why thereafter the exiled one maintains a heartless pursuit of the light of others. We can imagine that it hopes that if it could gather enough soul to itself, it could make a blaze of light that would finally rescind its darkness and repair its loneliness. In this sense, we have at the beginning of the tale a formidable being in its unredeemed aspect. Yet this fact is one of the central truths the youngest sister in the tale must acknowledge, that all women must acknowledge that both within and without there is a force which will act in opposition to the instincts of the natural self, and that malignant force is what it is. Though we might have mercy upon it, our first actions must be to recognize it, to protect ourselves from its devastations, and ultimately to deprive it of its murderous energy. All creatures must learn that there exist predators, Without this knowing, a woman will be unable to negotiate safely within her own forest without being devoured. To understand the predator, it is become a mature animal. To understand the predator is to become a mature animal who is not vulnerable out of naivete, inexperience or foolishness. Like a shrewd tracker, Bluebeard senses the youngest daughter is interested in him that is, willing to be prey. He asks for her in marriage and in a moment of youthful exuberance, which is often a combination of folly, pleasure, happiness and sexual intrigue. She says yes. <coughs> and the explanation for Bluebeard continues further. Each explanation in the book is very long, running into several pages. And now I'm going to attempt to read as much as I can before I get bored and want to read the next story. Here goes, Naive Women as Prey. Chapter 2, page 46. 
The youngest sister, the most undeveloped sister, plays out the very human story of the naive woman. She will be captured temporarily by her own inner stalker. Yet she will come out in the end wiser, stronger and recognizing the wily predator of her own psyche on sight. The psychological story underlying the tale also applies to the older woman who has not yet completely learned to recognize the innate predator. Perhaps she has begun the process over and over again, but lacking guidance and support has not yet finished with it. This is why teaching stories are so nourishing. They provide initiatory maps so even work which has hit a snag can be completed. The Bluebeard story is usable by all women, regardless of whether they are very young and just learning about the predator, or whether they have been hounded and harassed by it for decades and are at last readying for a final and decisive battle with it. Note, I believe in my life I'm at this stage right now. Carrying on further. The youngest sister represents a creative potential within the psyche, a something that is going toward exuberant and fissioning life. But there is a detour as she agrees to become the prize of a vicious man because her instincts to notice and do otherwise are not intact. Psychologically, young girls and young boys are as though asleep about the fact that they themselves are prey. Although sometimes it seems life would be much easier and much less painful if all humans were born totally awake, they are not. We are all born anlogen, like the potential at the center of a cell. In biology, the anlage is the part of a cell characterized as that which will become. Within the anlage is the primal substance which in time will develop causing to become a complete someone. So our lives as women are ones of quickening the anlage. The bluebeard that tale speaks to the awakening and education of this psychic center, this glowing cell. In service of this education, the youngest sister agrees to marry a force which she believes to be very elegant. The fairy tale marriage represents a new status being sought a new layer of the psyche about to be unfurled. However, the young wife has fooled herself. Initially, she felt fearful of Bluebeard. She was wary. However, a little pleasure out in the woods causes her to overrule her intuition. Almost all women have had this experience at least once. As a result, she persuades herself that Bluebeard is not dangerous, but only idiosyncratic and eccentric. Oh, how silly. Why am I so put off by that little old beard? Her wildish nature, however, has already sniffed out the situation and knows the bluebeard man is lethal. But the naive psyche disallows this inner knowing. This error of judgment is almost routine in a woman so young that her alarm systems are not yet developed. She's like an orphan wolf pup who rose and plays in the clearing, heedless of the 90-pound bobcat approaching from the shadows. In the case of the older woman who is so cut away from the wild that she can barely hear the inner warnings, 
She too proceeds smiling naively. You might well wonder if all this could be avoided as in the animal world a young girl learns to see the predator via her mother's and father's teachings. Without parents' loving guidance, she will certainly be prey early on. In hindsight, almost all of us have at least once experienced a compelling idea or semi-dazzling person crawling in through our windows at night and catching us off guard. Even though they're wearing a ski mask, have a knife between their teeth and a sack of money slung over their shoulder, we believe them when they tell us they are in the banking business. However, even with wise mothering and fathering, the young female may, especially beginning about age 12, be seduced away from her own truth by peer groups, cultural forces or psychic pressures and so begins a rather reckless risk-taking in order to find out for herself. When I work with older teenage girls who are convinced that the world is good, if they only work it right, it always makes me feel like an old grey-haired dog. I want to put my paws over my eyes and groan, for I see what they do not see, and I know, especially if they are willful and feisty, that they are going to insist on becoming involved with the predator at least once before they are shocked awake. At the beginning of our lives, our feminine viewpoint is very naive, meaning that emotional understanding of the covert is very faint. But this is where we all begin as females. We are naive and we talk ourselves into some very confusing situations. To be uninitiated in the ways of these matters means that we are in a time of our life when we are vulnerable to seeing only the overt. Among wolves, when the bitch leaves her pups to go hunting, the young ones try to follow her out of the den and down the path. She snarls at them, lunges at them and scares the beejesus out of them till they run slipping and sliding back to the den. Their mother knows her pups don't yet know how to weigh and assess other creatures. They don't know who is a predator and who is not. But in time she will teach them, both harshly and well. Like wolf pups, women need a similar initiation, one which teaches the that the inner and outer worlds are not always happy-go-lucky places. Many women do not even have the basic teaching about predators that a wolf mother gives her pups, such as, If it's threatening and bigger than you, flee. If it's weaker, see what you want to do. If it's sick, leave it alone. If it it has quills, poison fangs or razor claws, back up and go in the other direction. If it smells nice but is wrapped around metal jaws, walk on by. The youngest sister in the story is not only naive about her own mental processes and totally ignorant about the murdering aspect of her own psyche, but is also able to be lured by pleasures of the ego. And why not? We all want everything to be wonderful. Every woman wants to sit upon a horse dressed in bells and go riding off through the boundless green and sensual forest. All humans want to attain early paradise here on earth. The problem is that ego desires to flee, feel wonderful, but a yen for the paradisical. When combined with naivet, makes us not fulfilled but food for the predator. This equations 
to marry to marrying the monster is actually decided when girls are very young usually before 5 years of age they are taught to not see and instead to make pretty all manner of grotesqueries whether they are lovely or not this training is why the youngest sister can say hmm his beard isn't really that blue this early training to be nice causes women to override their intuitions in that sense they are actually purposefully taught to submit to the predator imagine a wolf mother teaching her young to be nice in the face of an angry ferret or a wily diamondback rattler in the tale even the mother colludes she goes on the picnic goes along for the ride she doesn't say a word of caution to any of her daughters one might say the biological mother or the internal mother is asleep or naive herself as is often the case in very young girls or in unmothered women interestingly in the tale the older sisters demonstrate some consciousness when they say they do not like bluebeard even though he has just entertained and regaled them in a very romantic and paradisical manner there is a sense in the story that some aspects of the psyche represented by the older sisters are a little more developed in insight that they have knowing which warns against romanticizing the predator the initiated woman pays attention to the older sisters voices in the psyche they warn her away from danger the uninitiated woman does not pay attention she is as yet too identified with naivete say for instance a naive woman keeps making poor choices in a mate somewhere in her mind she knows this pattern is fruitless that she should stop and follow a different value she often even knows how to proceed but there is something compelling a sort of bluebeard in mesmerization about continuing the destructive pattern in most cases the woman feels if she just holds on to the old pattern a little longer why surely the paradisical feeling she seeks will appear in the next heartbeat at another extreme a woman involved in a chemical addiction most definitely has at the back of her mind a set of older sisters who say no no way this is bad for the mind and bad for the body we refuse to continue but the desire to find paradise draws the woman into the marriage to bluebeard the drug dealer of psychic highs whatever dilemma a woman finds herself in the voices of the older sisters in her psyche continue to urge her to consciousness and to be wise in her choices they represent those voices in the back of the mind that whisper the truths that a woman may wish to avoid for the end of fantasy of paradise found <coughs> so the fa- fateful marriage occurs the mingling of the sweetly naive and the dastardly unlit when bluebeard leaves on his journey the young woman does not realize that even though she is exhorted to do anything she wishes except that one thing she is living less rather than living more 
Many women have literally lived the bluebeard tale. They marry while they are yet naive about predators and they choose someone who is destructive to their lives. They are determined to cure that person with love. Cure is quoted. They are in some way playing house, quote unquote. One could say they have spent much time saying, his beard isn't really so blue. Eventually, a woman thus captured will see her hopes for a decent life for herself and her children diminish more and more. It is to be hoped that she will finally open the door to the room where all the destruction of her life lies. While it may be the woman's actual mate who denigrates and dismantles her life, the innate predator within her own psyche concurs. As long as a woman is forced into believing she is powerless and or is trained to not consciously register what she knows to be true, the feminine impulses and gifts of her psyche continue to be killed off. When the youthful spirit marries the predator, she is captured or restrained during a time in her life that was meant to be an unfoldment. Instead of living freely, she begins to live falsely. The deceitful promise of the predator is that the woman will become a queen in some way, when in fact her murder is being planned. There is a way out of all this, but one must have a key. And the next chapter in this explanation is titled The Key to Knowing the Importance of Snuffling. This is only getting very, very interesting and I don't think I'm going to skip anything. So, on to the next chapter. The Key to Knowing The Importance of Snuffling from Clarissa Pinkola Est's book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Ah, now this tiny key, it is the entry to the secret all women know and yet do not know. The key is both permission and endorsement to know the deepest, darkest secrets of the psyche. In this case, the something that mindlessly degrades and destroys a woman's potential. Bluebeard continues his destructive plan by instructing his wife to compromise herself psychically. Do whatever you like, he says. He prompts the woman to feel a false sense of freedom. He implies she is free to nourish herself and to revel in bucolic landscapes, at least within the confines of his territory. But in reality, she is not free for she is constrained from registering the sinister knowledge about the predator, even though deep in the psyche she already truly comprehends the issue. The naive woman agrees to remain, quote-unquote, not knowing. Women who are gullible or those with injured instincts still, like flowers, turn in the direction of whatever sun is offered. The naive or injured woman is then too easily lured too easily lured with promises of ease, of lilting enjoyment, of various pleasures, be they promises of elevated status in the eyes of her family, her peers, 
or promises of increased security, eternal love or hot sex. Bluebeard forbids the young woman to use the one key that would bring her to consciousness. To forbid a woman to use the key to consciousness strips away wild woman. Her natural instinct for curiosity and her discovery of what lies underneath. Without the wild knowing, the woman is without proper protection. If she attempts to obey Bluebeard's command not to use the key, she chooses death for her spirit. By choosing to open the door to the ghastly secret room, she chooses life. In the tale, her sisters come to visit and, quote-unquote, they were, as old souls are, very curious. The wife gaily tells them, We can do anything except for one thing. The sisters decide to make a game out of finding which door the little key fits. They again have the proper impulse toward consciousness. Psychological thinkers from Freud to Bethlehem have interpreted episodes such as those found in the Bluebeard tale as a psychological punishment for women's, women's sexual curiosity. Women's curiosity was given a negative connotation, whereas men were called investigative. Women were called nosy, whereas men were called inquiring. In reality, the trivialization of women's curiosity, so that it seems like nothing more than irksome snooping, denies women's insight, hunches, intuitions. It denies all her senses. It attempts to attack her fundamental power. So considering that women who have not yet opened the forbidden door tend to be the same women who walk right into the bluebird's arms, it is fortuitous that... The older sisters have the proper wildish instincts for curiosity intact. These are the shadow women of the individual woman's psyches, the ticks and nudges in the back of a woman's mind that remind her, put her back in her right mind about what is important. Finding the little door is important. Disobeying the predator's order is important. Finding out what is so special about this one room is important. Doors in the times past were made mostly of stone, but also of wood. The spirit of the stone or wood was thought to be retained in the door, and it too was called upon to act as guardian of the door, of the room. Early on, there were more doors to tombs than to homes, and the very image of door meant something of spiritual value was within, or there was something within which must be kept contained. The door in the tale is portrayed as a psychic barrier, a kind of guard that is placed in front of the secret. This guard, which rests in stone or wood, reminds us again of the predator's reputation as a mage, a psychic force that twists and tangles us up as though by magic, keeping us from knowing what we know. Women strengthen this strengthen this barrier or door when they engage in a form of negative self-encouragement which warns them not to think or dive in too deeply for you may get more than you bargained for. In order to breach this barrier, the proper counter magic must be employed and the fitting magic is found in the symbol of the key. Asking the proper question is the central action of transformation. In fairy tales, in analysis and in individuation, 
The key question causes germination of consciousness. The properly shaped question always emanates from an essential curiosity about what stands behind. Questions are the keys that cause the secret doors of the psyche to swing open. Though the sisters know not whether treasure or travesty lies beyond the door, they summon their goodly instincts to ask the precise psychological question. Where do you think the door is and what might lie beyond it? It is at this point that the naive nature begins to mature, to question. What is behind the visible? What is it which causes that shadow to loom upon the wall? The youthful naive nature begins to understand that if there is a secret something, if there is a shadow something, if there is a forbidden something, it needs to be looked into. Those who would develop consciousness pursue all that stands behind the readily observable. The unseen chirping, the murked window, the lamenting door, the lip of light beneath a sill. They pursue these mysteries until the substance of the matter is laid open to them. As we shall see, the ability to stand what one sees is the vital vision which causes a woman to return to her deep nature, there to be sustained in all thoughts, feelings and actions. And continuing to the next next chapter immediately, <clears throat> Apologies for my slip of tongue. The winter dry throat is perhaps doing its work on me. But I am going to persist because this is very interesting and I hope you agree. The animal groom. So though the young woman attempts to follow the orders of the predator and agrees to be ignorant about the secret in the cellar, she can un- only do so for so long. Finally, she puts the key, the question, to the door and finds the shocking carnage in some part of her deep life. And that key, that tiny symbol of her life, suddenly will not ease, cease its bleeding, will not cease to give the cry that something is wrong. A woman may try to hide from the devastations of her life, but the bleeding, the loss of life's energy, will continue until she recognizes the predator for what it is and contains it. When women open the doors of their own lives and survey the carnage there in those out-of-the-way places, they most often find they have been allowing assassination of their most crucial dreams, goals and hopes. They find lifeless thoughts and feelings and desires, ones which were once graceful and promising, are now drained of blood. Whether these hopes and dreams be with, about desire for relationship, desire for an accomplishment, a success or a work of art, when there is this gruesome discovery in, in one's psyche, we can be sure the natural predator, also often symbolized in dreams as the animal groom, has been at work methodically destroying a woman's most cherished desires. The animal groom character is a maker in the psyche. Symbolizing a malevolent thing disguised as a benevolent thing. This is some proximate characterization is always present. This or some proximate characterization is always present when a woman carries naive 
presentments about something or someone. When a woman is attempting to avoid the facts of her own devastations, her night dreams will shout warnings to her, warnings and exhortations to wake up or get help or flee or go for the kill. Over the years, I've seen many women's dreams with this animal groom feature or this things are not as nice as they seem aura. One woman dreamt of a beautiful and charming man, but when she looked down, there was a loop of cruel barbed wire beginning to uncoil from his sleeve. Another woman dreamt that she was helping an old person cross the street and the old person suddenly smiled diabolically and melted on her arm, burning her deeply. Yet another woman dreamed of eating with an unknown friend whose fork flew across the table, mortally wounding the dreamer. This is not seeing, not understanding, not perceiving that our internal desires are not concomitant with our external actions. This is the spoor left behind by the animal groom. The presence of this factor in the psyche accounts for why women, who say they wish to have a relationship instead, do all they can to sabotage a loving one. This is how women who set goals to be here, there or wherever, by which such and such time never even begin the first leg of the journey or abandon it at the first hardship. This is how all the procrastinations which give rise to self-hatred, all the shame feelings which are pushed down and away to fester, all the new beginnings which are sorely needed and all the long overdue endings are not met. Wherever the predator lurks and works, everything is derailed, demolished and decapitated decapitated the animal groom is a widespread symbol in fairy tales the general story going something like this a strange man courts a young woman who agrees to be his bride but before the wedding day she takes a walk in the woods becomes lost and as darkness falls climbs into a tree to be safe safe from predators as she waits out the night, along comes her bethroad, bethroated, I never can say this, bethroated, <laughs> with a spade over his shoulder. Something about a groomed bee gives him away as being not truly human. Sometimes it is this strangely formed foot, hand or arm or hair that is decidedly, decidedly out there and gives him away. He begins to dig a grave beneath the very tree she sits in, all the while singing and muttering about how he will murder his latest bride-to-be and bury her in this grave. The terrified girl conceals, conceals herself all night long and in the morning when the groom-to-be is gone, she runs home, reports him to her brothers and father and the men waylay the animal groom and kill him. This is a powerful archetypal process in women's psyches. The woman is adequately perceptive and though she too at first agrees to marry that natural predator of the psyche and although she too goes through a period of being lost in the psyche, she wills out at the end for she will is able to see into the truth of it all and she is able to hold it in consciousness and take action to resolve the matter. Ah, so then comes the next step. 
even more difficult yet and that is to be able to stand what one sees all one's self-destruction and deadness ooh i can't wait to get to the next chapter called blood scent but i need to give rest to my throat hope you enjoyed bye for now blood scent in the tale the sisters slam the door to the killing chamber shut the young wife stares at the blood on the key a whimper rises within her i must scrub this blood off or he will know now the naive self has knowledge about a killing force loose within the psyche and the blood on the key is women's blood if it were only blood from having one's frivolous fantasies sacrificed there would be but a nick of blood on the key but it is so much more serious for the blood represents the decimation of the deepest and most soulful aspects of one's creative life in this state a woman is losing her energy to create whether it be solutions to mundane issues of her life such as school family friendships or her goals her personal development her art this is not a mere procrastination for it continues over weeks and months and years of time she seems flattened out filled with ideas perhaps but deeply anemic and more and more unable to act upon them the blood in this story is not menstrual blood but arterial blood from the soul it not only stains the key it runs down the entire persona the dress she wears as well as all her gowns in her wardrobe are stained by it it is a mask a person shows to the world in archetypal psychology clothing personifies the outer presence it is a mask a person shows to the world it hides much with proper psyche padding and disguises both men and women can present a near perfect persona a near perfect facade when the weeping key the crying question stains our personas we cannot any longer hide our travels we can say what we like present the most smiling facade but once we have seen the shocking truth of the killing room we can no longer pretend it does not exist and seeing the truth causes us to bleed energy even more it is painful it is artery cutting we must try to immediately correct this terrible state So in this fairy tale the key also acts as container it contains the blood which is the memory of what one has seen and knows for women the key always symbolizes entry to a mystery or into knowledge in fairy tales the key is often represented by words such as open sesame which ali baba shouts to a ragged mountain causing the entire mountain to rumble and crack open so he could pass through In a more picaresque manner at Disney Studios the fairy godmother in Cinderella's chortles bibbity bobbity boo and pumpkins turn into carriages and mice into coachmen <clears throat> In the Eleusinian mysteries the key was hidden on the tongue meaning the crux of the thing the clue the trace were in a special set of words key questions and the words women need most in situations similar to the one described in bluebeard are 
What stands behind? What is not as it appears? What do I know deep in my ovaries that I wish I did not know? What of me has been killed or lays dying? Any and all of these are keys. And the answers to these four questions are very likely to come up with blood on them. The killing aspect of the psyche, part of whose job it is to see that no consciousness occurs, will continue to check in from time to time and twist off or poison any new growth. It is its nature. It is its job. So in a, in a positive sense, it is only the insistent blood on, on this key which causes the psyche to hold on to what it has seen. You see, there is a natural censoring of all negative and painful events that occur in our lives. The censoring ego must certainly, most certainly wishes to forget it, ever saw, forget it, ever saw the room. Forget it ever saw the room, ever saw the cadavers. This is why Bluebeard's wife attempts to scour the key with horsehair. She tries everything she knows, all the remedies for lacerations and deep wounds from women's folk medicine, cobwebs, ash and fire, all associated with the weaving, weaving of life and death by the fates. But not only does she fail to cauterize the key, Neither can she end this process by pretending it is not occurring. She cannot stop the tiny key from weeping blood. Paradoxically, as her old life is dying, and even the best remedies will not hide that fact, she is awake to her blood loss and therefore just beginning to live. The formerly naive woman must face what has occurred. Bluebeard's killing of all his curious wives is the killing of the creative feminine, the one who has the potential to develop all manner of new and interesting aspects. The predator is particularly aggressive in ambushing woman's wildish nature. At the very least, it seeks to scorn and at the most to severe a woman's, sever a woman's connection to her own insights, inspirations, follow through and more. Another woman I worked with, an intelligent and gifted woman, told me of a grandmother who lived in the Midwest. <clears throat> Her grandmother's idea of a really good time was to board the train to Chicago and wear a big hat and walk down Michigan Avenue looking at all the shop windows and being an elegant lady, by hook or by crook or by fate, she married a farmer. They moved out into the midst of the wheatlands and she began to rot away in that elegant little farmhouse that was just the right size with all the right children and all the right husband. She had no more time for that frivolous life she'd once led. Too much kids, too much women's work. One day, years later, after washing the kitchen and living room floors by hand, she slipped into her very best silk blouse, buttoned her long shirt and pinned on her big hat. She pressed her husband's shotgun to the roof of her mouth and pulled the trigger. Every woman alive knows why she washed the floors first. <laughs> a starved soul can become so filled with pain, a woman can no longer bear it. Because women have a soul need 
to express themselves in their own soulful ways. They must develop and blossom in ways that are sensible to them and without molestation from others. In this sense, the key with blood could be said to also represent a woman's female bloodlines that have gone before her. Who among us does not know at least one female loved one who lost her instincts to make good choices for herself and was forced, therefore, to live a marginal life or worse? Perhaps you yourself are that woman. One of the least discussed issues of individuation is that as you shine the light into the dark of your psyche as strongly as you can, the shadows where the light is not grow even darker. So when we illuminate some part of the psyche, there is a resultant deeper dark to contend with. This dark cannot be let alone. The key, the questions, cannot be hidden or forgotten. They must be asked. They must be answered. The deepest work is usually the darkest. A brave woman, a wizening woman, will develop the poorest psychic land for if she builds only on the best land of her psyche, she will have for a view the least of what she is. So do not be afraid to investigate the worst. It only guarantees increase of soul power. It is in this psychic kind of land development that wild women shines wild woman shines. She's not afraid of the darkest dark. In fact, she can see in the dark. She's not afraid of awful, refuse, decay, stink, blood, cold bones, dying girls or murderous husbands. She can see it. She can take it. She can help. And this is what the youngest sister of the Bluebeard tale is learning. The skeletons in the chamber, chamber represent in the most positive light the indestructible force of the feminine. Archetypally, bones represent that which can never be destroyed. Stories of bones are essentially about something in the psyche that is difficult to destroy. The only thing that we possess that is difficult to destroy is our soul. When we talk about the feminine essence, we are really talking about the feminine soul. When we talk about the body scattered in the cellar, we are saying something has happened to the soul force and yet, even though its outer vitality has been taken away, even though life has essentially been wrung out of it, it has not been destroyed utterly. It can come back to life. It comes back to life through the young woman and her sisters, who ultimately are able to break the old pattern of ignorance and to behold a horror and not look away. They are able to see and to stand what they see. Here we are again at La Loba's place, at the archetypal bone woman's cave. Here we have the remnants of that what once was the full woman. However, unlike the cyclical life and death aspects of the wild woman archetype, who takes the life that is ready to die, incubates it and holds it back into the world again. Bluebeard only kills and dismantles a woman until she is nothing but bones. He leaves her no beauty, no love, no self, and therefore no ability to act in her own behalf. To remedy this, we as women must look to the killing thing that has gained hold of us, 
see the result of its grisly work, register it consciously and retain it in consciousness and then act. The cellar, dungeon and cave symbols are all related to one another. They are ancient initiatory environs, a place to or through which a woman descends to the murdered ones, breaks taboo to find the truth, and through wit and or travail, triumphs by banishing, transforming or exterminating the assassin of the psyche. The tale lays out the work for us with clear instructions. Track the bodies, follow instincts, see what you see, call up psychic muscle, dismantle the destructive energy. If a woman does not look into these issues of her own deadness and murder, she remains obedient to the dictates of the predator. Once she opens the room in the psyche that shows how dead, how slaughtered she is, she sees how various parts of her feminine nature and her instinctual psyche have been killed off and died a lowly death behind a facade of wealth. Now that she sees this, now that she registers how captured she is and how much psychic life is at stake, now she can do something even more powerful. Backtracking and looping. The next chapter. Thank you. Backtracking and looping. Backtracking and looping is when an animal dives under the ground to escape and pops up behind the predator's back. This is the psychic maneuver which Bluebeard's wife affects in order to re-establish her sovereignty over her own life once again. Bluebeard, upon discovering what he deems to be his wife's deceit, seizes her by her hair and drags her down the stairs. Now it is your turn. He roars. The killing element of the unconscious rises up and threatens to destroy the conscious woman. Analysis, dream interpretation, self-knowing, exploration, all are undertaken because they are ways of backtracking and looping. They are ways of diving down and coming up behind the issue and seeing it from a different perspective. Without the ability to see, truly see, what is learned about ego self and the numinous self slips away. In Bluebeard, the psyche now tries to avoid being killed. No longer naive, it has become cunning. It pleads for time to compose itself. In other words, time to straighten itself for the final battle. In outer reality, we find women planning their escapes too, whether from an old destructive mode, a lover or a job. She stalls for time. She bides her time. She plans her strategy and calls up her power internally before she makes an external change. Sometimes it is just this kind of immense threat from the predator that causes a woman to change from being an adaptive deer to having the hooded eye of the watchful. Ironically, both aspects of the psyche, the predator and the young potential, reach their boiling point. When a woman understands that she has been prey, both in the outer and inner worlds, she can hardly bear it. It strikes at the root of who she is at center and she plans, she must, to kill the predatory force. Meanwhile, her predator complex is enraged 
that she has pried upon the forbidden door and is busily making its rounds, attempting to cut off all avenues of her escape. This destructive force becomes murderous and says the woman has violated the holy of holies and now must die. When opposing, when opposing aspects of a woman's psyche both reach their flashpoints, a woman may feel incredibly tired, for her libido is being drawn away in two opposite directions. But even if a woman is fatigued unto death with her miserable struggles, no matter what they might be, even though she be starved of soul, she must yet plan her escape. A woman must force herself forward anyway. At this critical time, it is like being in sub-zero weather for a day and a night. In order to survive, we must not give in to the fatigue. To go to sleep is certain death. It is the more profound initiation, a woman's initiation into her proper instinctive senses when the predator is identified and banished. This is the moment in which the captured woman moves from victim status into shrewd-minded, wily-eyed, sharp-eared status instead. This is the time that almost superhuman effort manages to drive the so-tired psyche to its final work. The key questions continue to help, for the key continues to bleed its wise blood even for the predator, even as the predator forbids consciousness. His maniacal message is, for consciousness you die. Her response is to trick him into thinking she is his willing victim, victim while she plans his demis, ugh, demise. <clears throat> Among animals, there is said to be a mysterious psychic dance between predator and prey. It is said if the prey gives a certain kind of servile eye contact and a certain kind of shiver that causes a faint rippling of the skin over its muscles, that the prey acknowledges its weakness to the predator and agrees to become the predator's victim. There are times to shiver and run and there are times to not. At this time, a woman must not shiver and must not growl. Bluebeard's wife, young wife, wife's plea for time to gather herself together is not the signal of submission to the predator. It is a shrewd way of gathering her energy up into muscle. Like certain creatures of the forest, she is poised to make an all-out strike against the predator. She dives into the ground to escape the predator, then unexpectedly surfaces behind him. Since it was a short chapter, I will continue with the next one, Giving the Cry. When Bluebeard bellows for his wife and she stalls for dear time, she is trying to rouse energy to overwhelm the captor, whether that specifically or in combination be a destructive religion, husband, family, culture, or a woman's negative complexes. Bluebeard's wife pleads for her life, but craftily. Please, she whispers, allow me to prepare for my death. Yes, he snarls, but be ready. The young woman summons her psychic brothers. What do these represent in a woman's psyche? They are the more muscled, more naturally aggressive propellants of the psyche. They are the force within a woman which can act when it is time to kill. Although this attribute is 
here portrayed by the male gender it can be portrayed by either gender and by other things which are genderless such as the mountain which snaps shut on the intruder the sun which descends for an instant to burn the morader to a crisp the wife races up the stairs to her chamber and posts her sisters on the ramparts she cries up to her sisters do you see our brothers coming yet and her sisters call down that they see nothing yet as bluebeard roars for his wife to come to the cellar so he can behead her again she cries do you see our brothers coming and her sisters call down that perhaps they see a little dust devil or a whirlwind off in the distance here we have the entire scene of a woman's surge of intrapsychic power her sisters the wiser ones take center stage in this last initiatory step they become her eyes the woman's cry travels over the long intrapsychic distance to where her brother brothers live to where those aspects of psyche that are trained to fight to fight to the death if necessary live but initially the defending defending aspects of psyche are not immediately as close by to consciousness as they should be many women's clarity and fighting natures are not as close to consciousness as is efficient a woman must practice calling up or conjuring her contentious nature her whirlwind dust devil force the symbol of the whirling wind is a central force of determination which when focused rather than scattered gives tremendous energy to a woman with this more fierce attitude at the ready she will not lose consciousness or be interred along with the rest she will solve for once and for all the interior woman killing her loss of libido the loss of her passion for life while the key questions provide the opening and loosening required for her liberation without the eyes of the sisters without the muscle of the sword wielding brothers she cannot fully succeed bluebeard shouts for his wife and begins to clomp up the stone steps his wife cries to her sisters and now do you see them now and her sisters cried on yes we see them now they're almost here her brothers gallop down the hall they charge into her room and drive bluebeard out onto the parapet there with swords they kill him and leave what is left of him for the carrion eaters when women when women resurface from their naivete they draw with them and to themselves something unexplored in this case the now wiser woman draws an internal masculine energy to her aid in jungian psychology this element has been named animus a partly mortal partly instinctual partly cultural element of a woman's psyche that shows up in fairy tales and in dream symbols as her son husband stranger and or lover possibly threatening depending on her psychic circumstances of the moment this psychic figure is particularly valuable because it is invested with qualities which are traditionally bred out of women aggression being one of the more common when this opposite gender nature is healthy as symbolized by the brothers in bluebeard it loves the woman it inhabits it is the intrapsychic energy which helps her to accomplish anything she asks he is the one who has psychic muscle where she may have differing gifts 
he will aid and assist her in her bid for consciousness. For many women, he bridges between the worlds of internal thought and feeling and the outer world. The stronger and more vast the animus, think of the animus as a bridge. The more able, easily and with style the woman manifests her ideas in her creative work in the outer world in a concrete way. A woman with a poorly developed animus has lots of ideas and thoughts but is unable to manifest them in the outer world. She always stops short of the organization or implementation of her wonderful images. The brothers represent the blessing of strength and action. With them in the end, two things occur. One is that the vast and disabling ability of the predator is neutralized in a woman's psyche. And second, the blueberry the blueberry-eyed maiden is replaced by one with eyes awake and a warrior to each side of her if she but calls for them. And that's it for tonight, my friends. Be well. And we continue. The Sin Eaters Bluebeard is through and through a cutting story about severing and reunion. In the final stage of the story, Bluebeard's body is left for the flesh eaters, the cormorants, raptors and buzzards to carry away. Here we have a very strange and mystical ending. In ancient times, where there were souls, in ancient times there were souls called sin eaters. These were spirits, birds or animals, sometimes humans, who somewhat like the scapegoat took on the sins, the waste of the community so people could be redeemed or cleansed. We have seen how wild woman is La Loba, the bone woman, the finder of the dead, the one who sings over the bones of the dead, bringing them back to life and that this life-death-life nature is a central attribute of the wildish and instinctual nature of women. Likewise, in Norse mythology, the sin-eaters are carrion-eaters who devour the dead, incubate them in their bellies and carry them to hell, H-E-L, who is not a place but a person. Hell is the goddess of life and death. She shows the dead how to live backward. They become younger and younger until they are ready to be reborn and re-released back into life. This eating of sins and sinners and the subsequent incubation of them and their release back into life once more constitutes an individuation process for the most base beings in the psyche. In this sense, it is right and proper for the purpose that we draw energy out of the predator elements of our psyches, killing them, so to speak, draining their powers. Then they may be returned to the compassionate life-death-life mother, to be transformed and reissued, hopefully in a less contentious state. Many scholars who have studied this tale think Bluebeard represents a force which is not redeemable, but I sense additional ground for this aspect of the psyche. Not a transformation from mass murderer into Mr. Chips, but more like a person who must be in an asylum, but a decent place with trees and sky and proper food and maybe music to soothe, but not banished to a backward in the psyche to be tortured and reviled 
on the other hand do not i do not want to portray that there is no such thing as manifest and irredeemable evil for that also exists throughout time there is the mystical sense that any individuation work done by humans also changes the darkness in the collective unconscious of all humans that being the place where the predator resides young one said that god became more conscious as humans became more conscious he postulated that humans caused the dark side of god to become struck with light when they routed their personal demons out into the light of day i do not claim to know how it all works but following archetypal pattern it would look and work something like this instead of reviling the predator of the psyche or running away from it we dismember it we accomplish this by not allowing ourselves divisive thoughts about our soul life and our worth in particular we capture invidious thoughts before they become large enough to do any harm and we dismantle them we dismantle the predator by countering its dire tribes with our own nurturant truths predator you never finish anything you start yourself i finish many things we dismantle the souls of the natural predator by taking to heart and working with what is truthful in what the predator says and then dis- discarding the rest we dismantle the predator by maintaining our intuitions and instincts and by resisting the predator's seductions if we were to list all our losses up to this point in our lives remembering times when we were disappointed when we were powerless against torment when we had a fantasy filled with frosting and frau frau we would understand that those are vulnerable sites in our psyches it is to those desirous and underprivileged parts that the predator appeals in order to hide the fact that its sole intention is to drag you to the cellar and leech your energy as a blood transfusion for his himself in the finale of the bluebeard story his bones and gristle are left for the buzzards this gives us a strong insight into transformation of the predator this is the last task for a woman in the bluebeardian journey to allow her life death life nature to pick the predator apart and carry it off to the incubated transformed released back into life when we refuse to entertain the predator its strength is extracted and it is unable to act without us we in a sense drive it down into the layer of the psyche where all creation is as yet unformed and let it bubble in that etheric soup till we find till we can find a form a better form for it to fill when the predator psyche psychic energum is rendered it is formable to some other purpose when we we are creators then the raw substance reduced down it becomes then the stuff of our own creation women find that as they vanquish vanquish the predator taking from it what is useful and leaving the rest they are filled with intensity vitality and drive they have rendered from the predator what has been stolen from them vigor and substance to render the predator's energy and to return it to something else can be understood in these ways the predator's rage can be rendered into a soul fire for accomplishing a great task in the world the predator's craftiness can be used to inspect and understand things from a distance the predator's killing nature can be used to kill off that which must properly die in a woman's life or what must 
what she must die to in her outer life, these being different things at different times. To render the parts of Bluebeard is like taking the medicinal parts of the deadly nightshade or the healing elements of the poisonous belladonna plant and using these materials carefully and for healing and helping. What ash of the predator is left then will indeed rise up again, but in much smaller form, much more recognizably and with much less power to deceive and destroy. For you have rendered many of its powers which it piled destructively and you have turned these powers toward the useful and the relevant. Bluebeard is one of the teaching tales which are important for women who are young, not necessarily in years but in some part of their minds. It is a tale of psychic naivete but also of powerfully breaching the injunction against looking and finally cutting down and rendering the natural predator of the psyche. Story is meant to set the inner life back into motion again. The Bluebeard story is a medicine which is particularly important to apply where the inner life of a woman has become frightened or wedged or cornered. Story solutions lessen fear. Give doses of adrenaline, adrenaline at just the right time and most importantly for the captured naive self, cut doors into walls which are previously blank. Perhaps most important, the Bluebeard story raises to consciousness the psychic key, the ability to ask any and all questions about oneself, about one's family, one's endeavours and about life all around. Then like the wildish being who sniffs things out, snuffles into and under and around to discover what a thing is, a woman is free to find true answers to her deepest and darkest questions. She is free to wrest the powers from the thing which has assailed her and to turn those powers which were once used against her to her own well-suited and excellent uses. That is a wildish woman. And I will read you the next and the last chapter in this explanation a little later. For now, I hope this is food for thought for today. For me, it's directly informing my decision of staying away from family in a very compassionate but very firm and clear intuitive guidance that is allowing me to say nope can't do that whereas in the earlier phases I have had this gut feeling that I don't want to do and I have talked to myself out of it into doing what my mother would suggest mostly it was my mother or my father would bully me into Today, particularly just last night, I was simply able to say, nope, that does not suit our plans. I cannot accommodate uh, the choices and options you're giving me at this moment. I will keep you updated. Thank you very much. In a very compassionate way. And I just love it. So that's it for now. I will see you soon. Welcome to the last part in chapter 2, the last explanation. Bear with my voice, it's shaking because I'm resting from fever and weakness, but there is somehow I can't stop reading. The dark man in women's dreams. The natural predator of the psyche is not only found in fairy tales, but also in dreams. There is a universal initiatory dream among women 
one so common that it is remarkable if a woman has reached age 25 without having had such a dream. The dream usually causes women to jolt awake, striving and anxious. This is the pattern of the dream. The dreamer is alone, often in her own home. There are one or more prowler types outside in the dark. Frightened, she dials the emergency phone number for help. Suddenly, she realizes the prowler is inside the house with her, close to her. Perhaps she can feel his breath. Perhaps he is even touching her. And she cannot ring the emergency number. The dreamer awakens instantly, breathing gutturally, heart like a crazy drum. There is a strong physical aspect to having a dream of the dark man. The dream is often accompanied by sweats, struggles, hoarse breathing, heart pounding, and sometimes cries and moans of fear from the dreamer. We could say the dream maker has dispensed with subtle messages to the dreamer and now sends images which shake the neurological and autonomic nervous system of the dreamer, thereby communicating the urgency of the matter. The antagonists of this dark man dream are usually, in women's own words, terrorists, rapists, thugs, concentration camp, Nazis, more raiders, murderers, criminals, creeps, bad men, thieves. There are several levels to the interpretation of such a dream, depending on the life circumstances and interior dramas surrounding the dreamer. For instance, often such a dream is a reliable indicator that a woman's consciousness is in the case of a very young woman, as in the case of a very young woman, is just beginning to gain awareness of the innate psychic predator. In other instances, the dream is a harbinger. The woman dreamer has just discovered or is about to discover and begin liberating a forgotten and captive function of her psyche. Under yet other circumstances, the dream is about an increasingly tolerable situation in the culture outside the dreamer's personal life, one which she is being called to fight or flee. First, let us understand the subjective ideas in this motive as applied to the personal and interior life of the dreamer. The dark man dream tells a woman that what predicament she is facing. The dream tells about a cruel attitude toward herself as personified by the thug in the dream. Like Bluebeard's wife, if the woman can consciously gain hold of the key question about this matter and answer it honestly, she can be set free. Then the muggers, lurkers and predators of the psyche will exert much less pressure on her. They will fall away to a distant layer of the unconscious. There she can deal with them conscientiously instead of in crisis. The dark man in women's dreams appears when an initiation, a psychic change from one level of knowing and behavior to another more mature, a more energetic level of knowledge and action is imminent. This dream occurs to the as yet to be initiated, as well as those who are veterans of several rites of passage, for there is always more initiation. No matter how old a woman becomes, no matter how many years pass, she has yet more ages, stages and more first times awaiting her. That is what initiation is all about. It creates an archway which one prepares to pass through to a new manner of knowing and being. 
Dreams are portals, entrances, preparations and practices for the next step in a woman's consciousness, the next day in her individuation process. So a woman might have a dream of the predator when her psychic circumstances are too quiescent or complacent. We could say that this occurs in order to raise a storm in the psyche so that some energetic work can be done. But also a dream like this affirms that the woman's life needs to change, that the woman dreamer has gotten caught in some hiatus or ennui as regards a difficult choice, that she is reluctant to take the next step, go to the next distance, that she is shying away from resting her own power away from the predator, that she is not used to being, acting, striving at full bore in all out capacity. Additionally, dark man dreams are also wake-up calls that say to pay attention to something gone radically amiss in the outer world or in personal life or in the outer collective culture. Classical psychology theory tends to, be, tends to, by absolute omission, split the human psyche away from relationship to the land on which humans live, away from knowledge of the cultural etologies of malice and unrest and also to severe sever psychic from the politics and policies which shape the inner and outer lives of humans, as though that outer world were not just as surreal, not just as symbol-laden, not just as impacting and imposing upon one's soul life as the inner din. When the outer world has intruded on the basic soul life of one individual or of many, dark man dreams come in legions. It has, been it has been fascinating to me to have gathered dreams from women afflicted by something gone wrong in the outer culture, such as those living near the poisonous smelter at New York, at York City, Idaho, to dreams dreamt by some extremely conscious women actively involved in social action and environment protection, such as La Gorilla's Comparneras, warrior sisters in the Quebrada outback of Central America women in the Cofradios de Santueros in the United States and civil rights proponents in Latino city, Latino county. They all dream many dark man dreams. Generally, it would appear that to the naive or non-cognizant dreamers, these are meant as wake-up calls. Hola, pay attention, you're in danger. And to those women who are quite conscious and involved in social action, the dark man dream seems to be almost a tonic, which reminds the woman what she is up against, which encourages her in turn to stay strong, stay vigilant and to continue the work at hand. So when women dream of the natural predator, it is not always or solely a message about the interior life. Sometimes it is a message about the threatening aspects of the culture one lives in, whether it be a small but brutal culture at their office one within their own family, the lands of their neighborhood, or as wide as their own religious or national culture. As you can see, each group and culture appears to have also its own natural psychic predator. And we see from history that there are eras in culture. Eras in cultures during which the predator is identified with and allowed absolute sovereignty until the people who believe otherwise become a tide. While much psychology emphasizes the familial causes of angst in humans, the cultural component carries as much weight, for culture is the family of the family. 
If the family of the family has various sicknesses, then all families within that culture will have to struggle with the same malices. There is a saying, cultura cura, culture cures. If the culture is a healer, the families learn how to heal. They will struggle less, be more reparative, far less wounding, far more graceful and loving. In a culture where the predator rules, all new life needing to be born, all old life needing to be gone, is unable to move and the soul lives of its citizenry are soul lives of its citizenry are frozen with both fear and spiritual famine. Why this intruder which in woman's dreams most often takes shape of an intrusive male seeks to attack the instinctual psyche and its wildish knowing powers in particular no one can say for certain. We say it is the nature of the thing, yet we find this destructive process exacerbated when the culture around a woman touts, nourishes and protects destructive attitudes toward the deep, instinctual and soulful nature. By this, the culture causes these very destructive values to which the predator avidly agrees to grow stronger within the psyches of all its inhabitants. Likewise, when a society exhorts its people to be distrustful of and to shun the deep instinctual life, then the auto-predatory element in our psyches is strengthened and accelerated. Yet, even in an oppressive culture, in whatever women the wild woman still lives and thrives or even glimmers, there will be a key. Questions asked. There will be key quote-unquote questions asked. Not only the ones we find useful for insight into ourselves, but also ones about our culture. What stands behind these proscriptions I see in the outer world? What goodness or usefulness of the individual, of the culture, the earth, of human nature has been killed or lays dying here? Once these issues are examined, the woman is unable to act according to her own abilities, according to her own talents, to take the world into one's arms and to act toward it in a soul-filled and soul-strengthening manner is a powerful act of wildish spirit. It is for this reason that the wildish nature in women must be preserved and even in some instances guarded with extreme vigilance so that it is not suddenly abducted and garrooted. Garoted. It is important to feed this instinctive nature, to shelter it, to give it increase. For even in the most restrictive conditions of culture, family or psyche, there is far less paralysis in women who have remained connected to the deep and wild instinctual nature. Though there be injury if a woman is captured and or tricked into remaining naive and compliant, there is still left adequate energy to overcome the captor, to evade it, to outrun it, and eventually to sunder and render it for their own constructive use. There is one other specific instance in which women are highly likely to experience dark man dreams, and that is when their internal creative fire is smoking and banking all by itself, when there is little fuel left in the corner, or when the white ashes grow deeper every day, Yet the cookpot remains empty. These syndromes can occur even when we are veterans at our art, as well as when we first seriously begin to apply our gifts outwardly.
they occur when there is a predatory intrusion into the psyche and as a result we find every reason to do anything and everything except sit there or stand there or travel there and in order to execute whatever it is that we hold dear in these cases the dark man dream even though accompanied by heart jumping fear is not an ominous dream it is a very positive one with a proper and timely need to awaken to a destructive movement within one's own psyche to that which is stealing one's fire intruding on one's whim robbing one of the place the space the time the territory to create often the creative life is slowed or stopped because something in the psyche has a very low opinion of us and we are down there growling at its feet instead of bobbing bopping it over the head and running free in many cases what is required to right the situation is that we take ourselves our ideas our art far more seriously than we have done before due to wide breaks in matrilineal circle over many generations this business of valuing one's creative life that is valuing the beauteous and artful ideas and works which issue from the wildish soul has become a perennial issue for women in my consulting room i have watched a certain poets as certain poets toss their pages of work onto the sofa as though their poetry were refuse rather than treasure i have seen artists bring their paintings to session banging them against the door frame on their way in i have seen the green gleam in women's eyes as they try to disguise their anger that others seem able to create and that they themselves for some reason cannot i have heard all the excuses that any woman might knit up i'm not talented i'm not important i'm not educated i have no ideas i don't know how i don't know what i don't know when and the most scurrilous of all i don't have time i always want to shake them upside down until they repent and promise never to tell falsehoods again but i don't have to shake them up for the dark man in the dreams will do that and if not he then another dream actor will the dark man dream is a scary dream and scary dreams are most often very good for creativity they show the artist what will happen to them if they allow themselves to be fried into talented derelicts this dark man dream is often enough to scare a woman back into creating again at the very least she can create work which elucidates the dark man in our own dreams the threat of the dark man serves as a warning to all of us if you don't pay attention to the treasures they will be stolen from you in this manner when a woman has one or a series of these dreams it means that a huge gate is opening into the initiatory grounds where her revaluing of her gifts can occur there whatever has been incrementally destroying her or robbing her can be recognized apprehended and dealt with when a woman works to espy the predator of her own psyche and if she will acknowledge its presence and do necessary battle with it the predator will move to a much more isolated and unobtrusive point in the psyche but if the predator is ignored it becomes increasingly and deeply hateful and jealous with a desire to silence the woman forever 
At a very mundane level, it is important for a woman having dark man and blue beard and sort of sorts of dreams to cleanse her life of as much negativity as she can. <clears throat> Sometimes it is necessary to limit or thin out certain relationships. Mm-hmm. For if a woman is outwardly surrounded by persons who are antagonistic or to ca- or antagonistic to or careless about her deep life. Her interior predator is fed by this and develops extra muscle within her psyche and more aggressive towards her. Women are often highly ambivalent about aggression towards the intruder for they think it is a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation. If she doesn't break away, the dark man becomes her keeper and she his slave. If she does break away, he pursues her relentlessly as though he owns her. Women fear that if he will hunt them down in order to bring them back into submission and this fear is reflected in their dream lives. And so, it is common for women to kill off their creative, soulful and wildish natures in response to threats from the predator. That is why the women lie as skeletons and cadavers in Bluebeard's cellar. They learned of the trap, but too late. Consciousness is the way out of the box, the way out of the torture. Uh, I like to repeat this line. Consciousness is the way out of the box, the way out of the torture. It is the path away from the dark man, and women are entitled to fight tooth and nail to have it and keep it. In the Bluebeard story, as we see how a woman who falls under the spell of the predator rouses herself and escapes him, wiser for the next time. The story is about the transformation of four shadowy introjects, which are in particular contention for women. Have no vision, have no sight, have no voice, have no action. In order to banish the predator, we must do the opposite. We must unlock or pry things open to see what is inside. We must use our insight and our ability to stand what we see. We must speak our truth in a clear voice. And we must be able to use our wits to do what needs to be about what we see. When a woman is strong in her instinctual nature, She intuitively recognizes the innate predator by scent, sight and hearing, anticipates its presence, hears it approaching and takes steps to turn it away. In the instinct-injured woman, the predator is upon her before she registers its presence, for her listening, her knowing and her apprehension are impaired, mainly by interjects which exhort her to be nice, to behave and especially to be blind, to be to being misused. Psychically, it is difficult at first glance to tell the difference between the uninitiated, who are yet young and therefore naive, and women who are injured in instinct. Neither knows much about the dark predator, and both are therefore still credulous. But fortunately for us, when the predator element of a woman's psyche is on the move, it leaves behind unmistakable tracks in her dreams. These tracks eventually lead to its discovery, capture and containment. The cure for both the naive woman and the instinct-injured woman is the same. Practice listening to your intuition, your inner voice. Ask questions. Be curious. See what you see. 
hear what you hear and then act upon what you know to be true. These intuitive powers were given to your soul at birth. That's a very important line. These intuitive powers were given to your soul at birth. They have been covered over perhaps by years and years of ashes and sick excrement. This is not the end of the world for these always wash off. With some chipping and scraping and practice, your perceptive powers can be brought back to their pristine state again. By retrieving these powers from the shadows of our psyches, we shall not be simple victims of internal or external circumstances. No matter how culture, personality, psyche or other might demand women be dressed and behave, no matter how they may all wish to keep all females in a gaggle with ten dozing duennas, chaperones nearby, no matter what pressures attempt to compress a woman's soul life, they cannot change the fact that a woman is what she is, and that is dictated by the wild unconscious, and that is good. It is crucial for us to remember that when we have dark man dreams, there is always an opposing power poised and waiting to help us. When we initiate wildish energy in order to balance the predator, guess who immediately shows up? Wild woman comes diving over whatever fences, walls or obstructions the predator has erected. She is not an icon to be hung on the wall like a retablo, religious painting. She is a living being who comes to us anywhere. Interesting that she mentions retablo while I am painting a religious painting. <clears throat> she is living. She is a living being who comes to us anywhere under any conditions. She and the predator have known each other a long, long time. She tracks him through dreams, through stories, through tales and through women's entire lives. Wherever he is, she is, for she is the one who balances his predations. While women, while woman teaches women when not to act nice about protecting their soulful lives, the wildish nature knows that being sweet in these instances only makes the predator smile. When the soulful life is being threatened, it is not only acceptable to draw the line and mean it, it is required. When a woman does this, her life cannot be interfered with for long, for she knows immediately what is wrong and can push the predator back where it belongs. She is no longer naive, she is no longer a mark or a target, and this is the medicine that causes the key, finally, to seize its bleeding. And that marks the end of chapter 2, and we will begin chapter 3 with the beautiful story the doll in her pocket, Vasilisa the Wise. If you know the story of Vasilisa, I look forward to reading for you and myself and get better soon. Thank you for listening. If you have any any insights, anything to share, there is a button here that you could send a direct message to me and I could possibly invite you to uh, to chat with us on this podcast. Love to hear from you. Thank you. Chapter 3 Nosing Out the Facts The Retrieval of Intuition as Initiation From the book Women Who Run with the Wolves 
Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype by Clarissa Pinkola Estes The Doll in Her Pocket Vasilisa the Wise Intuition is the treasure of a woman's psyche. It is like a divining instrument and like a crystal through which one can see with uncanny interior vision. It is like a wise old woman who is with you always, who tells you exactly what the matter is, tells you exactly whether you need to go left or right. It is a form of the one who knows, old La Q. Sabe, the wild woman. I can't exactly know how to pronounce La Q. Sabe. L-A-Q-U-E-S-A-B-E with an acute on top of the E. Maybe one of my listeners can hit the message button and record a message and tell me exactly how to pronounce this. It is delicious, isn't it? All right, let's continue. Dedicated storytellers are always off under some hill, up to their knees in story dust brushing away centuries of dirt, digging under overlays of culture and conquests, numbering every frieze and fresco of story they can find. Sometimes the story has been reduced to powder, sometimes portions and details are missing or rubbed out, often the form is intact but the colouring is destroyed. But even so, every dig holds hope for finding an entire body of story, intact and unbroken. The following tale is just such an incredible treasure. The old Russian tale, Vasilisa, is a woman's initiation story with few essential bones astray. It is about the realization that most things are not as they seem. As women, we call upon our intuition and instincts in order to sniff things out. We use all our senses to wring the truth from things, to extract nourishment from ideas, to see what there is to see, know what there is to know, to be the keepers of the creative fire and to have intimate knowing about the life-death life cycles of all nature. This is an initiated woman. The Vasilisa story is told in Russia, Romania, Yugoslavia, Poland, and throughout all the Baltic countries. Sometimes it's called the doll, sometimes Vasilisa, the wise. We find evidence of its archetypal roots dating back at least to the old horse goddess cults which predate classical Greek culture. This tale carries ages-old psychic mapping about induction into the underworld of the wild female god. It is about infusing human women with wild woman's primary instinctual power, intuition. This tale was given to me by my aunt, Cathy. It begins with one of the oldest storytelling devices known. Once there was and once there was not. This paradoxical phrase is meant to alert the soul of the listener that this story takes place in the world between worlds where nothing is as it first seems. So let us begin.
Vasilisa. Once there was and once there was not a young mother who lay on her deathbed, her face pale as the white wax roses in the sacristy of the church nearby. Her young daughter and her husband sat at the end of her old wooden bed and prayed that God would guide her safely into the next world. The dying mother called to Vasilisa, and the little child in red boots and white apron knelt at her mother's side. Here is a doll for you, my love, the mother whispered, and from the hairy coverlet she pulled a tiny doll, which, like Vasilisa herself, was dressed in red boots, white apron, black shirt, skirt and vest embroidered all over with coloured thread. Here are my last words, beloved, said the mother. Should you lose your way or be in need of help, ask this doll what to do. You will be assisted. Keep the doll with you always. Do not let anyone about her. Feed her when she is hungry. This is my mother's promise to you. My blessing on you, dear daughter. And with that, the mother's breath fell into the depths of her body, where it gathered up her soul and rushed out from between her lips, and the mother was dead. <coughs> the child and her father mourned for a very long time, but like the field cruelly ploughed under the war, ploughed under by war, the father's life rose green from the furrows again and he married a widow with two daughters. Although the new stepmother and her daughters spoke in polite tones and always smiled like ladies, there was something of the rodent behind their smiles. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> Although the new stepmother and her daughters spoke in polite tones and always smiled like ladies, there was something of the rodent behind their smiles which Vasilisa's father did not perceive. Sure enough, when the three women were alone with Vasilisa, they tormented her, forced her to wait on them, sent her to chop wood so her lovely skin would become blemished. They hated her because she had a sweetness about her that was otherworldly. She was also very beautiful. Her breasts were bounding while theirs dwindled from meanness. She was helpful and uncomplaining while the stepmother and stepsisters were among themselves like rats in the awful pile at night. <coughs> One day, the stepmother and stepsisters simply could not stand Vasilisa any longer. Let us conspire to make the fire go out, and then let us send Vasilisa into the forest to Baba Yaga, the witch to beg fire for our hearth. And when she reaches Baba Yaga, well, old Baba Yaga will kill her and eat her. Oh, they all clapped and squeaked like things that live in the dark. 
So that evening, when Vasilisa came home from gathering wood, the entire house was dark. She was very concerned and addressed her stepmother. What has happened? What will we do to cook with? What will we do to light the darkness? The stepmother admonished, You stupid child, obviously we have no fire, and I can't go out into the woods because I'm old. My daughters can't go because they are afraid. So you are the only one who can go out into the fire to find Baba Yaga and get a coal to start our fire again. Vasilisa replied innocently, Well, all right. Yes, I'll do that. And so she went. The woods became darker and darker and sticks cracked under her feet, frightening her. She reached down in the long, deep pocket of her apron and there was the doll her dying mother had given her. And Vasilisa patted the doll in her pocket and said, Just touching this doll? Yes, I feel better. And at every fork in the road, Vasilisa reached into her pocket and consulted the doll. Well, should I go to the left or should I go to the right? The doll indicated, Yes or no, or this way, or that way. And Vasilisa fed the doll some of her bread as she walked and followed what she felt was emanating from the doll. Suddenly a man in white on a white horse galloped by and it became daylight. Further on a man in red sauntered by on a red horse and the sun rose. Vasilisa walked and walked and just as she came to the hovel of Baba Yaga, a rider dressed in black came trotting on a black horse and rode right into Baba Yaga's hut. Swiftly it became night. The fence made of skulls and bones surrounding the hut began to blaze with an inner fire so the clearing there in the forest glowed with an eerie light. Now the Baba Yaga was a very fearsome creature. She travelled not in a chariot, not in a coach, but in a cauldron, shaped like a mortar, which flew along all by itself. She rode, she rode this vehicle with an oar shaped like a pestle. And all the while she swept out the tracks of where she'd been with a broom made of long dead person's hair. The cauldron flew through the sky with Baba Yaga's own greasy hair flying behind. Her long chin curved up and her long nose curved down and they met in the middle. She had a tiny white goatee and warts on her skin from her trade in toads. Her brown stained fingernails were thick and rig rigid like roofs and so curled over she could not make a fist. Even more strange was the Baba Yaga's house. It sat, it sat upon atop huge scaly yellow chicken legs and walked about all by itself and sometimes twirled around and around like an ecstatic dancer. The bolts on the doors and shutters were made of human fingers and toes and the lock on the front door was a snout with many pointed teeth. Vasilisa consulted her doll and asked, Is this the house we seek? And the doll in its own way answered, Yes, this is what you seek. 
and before she could take another step, Baba Yaga, in her cold drawn, descended on Vasilisa and shouted down at her, What do you want? And the girl trembled. Grandmother, I come for fire. My house is cold. My people will die. I need fire. Baba Yaga snapped. Oh, yes, I know you and your people. Well, you useless child, you let the fire go out. That's an ill-advised thing to do. And besides, what makes you think I should give you the flame? Vasilisa consulted her doll and quickly replied, Because I ask? Baba Yaga purred, You're lucky, that is the right answer. And Vasilisa felt very lucky she had given the right answer. Baba Yaga threatened, I cannot possibly give you fire until you have done some work for me. If you perform these tasks for me, you shall have the fire. If not... And here Vasilisa saw Baba Yaga's eyes turn suddenly to red cinders. If not, my child, you shall die. So Baba Yaga rumbled into the hovel and laid down upon her bed and ordered Vasilisa to bring her what was cooking in the oven. In the oven was enough food for ten people and the Yaga ate it all, leaving just a tiny crust and a thimble of soup for Vasilisa. Wash my clothes, sweep the yard and the house, prepare my food and separate the mildewed corn from the good corn and see that everything is in order. I will be back to inspect your work later. If it is not done, you will be my feast. And with that, Baba Yaga flew off in a cauldron with her nose as the windsock and her hair as the sail. And it became night again. Vasilisa turned to a doll as soon as the Yaga had gone. What shall I do? Can I complete these tasks in time? The doll assured her she could, and to eat a little and go to sleep. Vasilisa fed the doll a little too. Then she slept. In the morning, the doll had done all the work, and all that remained was the meal to be cooked. In the evening, the Yaga returned and found nothing undone. Pleased in a way, but not pleased because she could not find fault, Baba Yaga sneered. You are a very lucky girl. She then called on her faithful servants to grind the corn, and three pair of pairs of hands appeared in mid-air and began to rasp and crush the corn. The shaft flew in the house like a golden snow. Finally it was done, and Baba Yaga sat down to eat. She ate for hours and ordered Vasilisa on the morrow to again clean the house, sweep the yard and launder her clothes. The Yaga pointed to a great mound of dirt in the yard. In that pile of dirt are many poppy seeds, millions of poppy seeds. And I want in the morning to have one pile of poppy seeds and one pile of dirt, all separated out from each other. Do you understand? Vasilisa almost fainted. Oh my, how am I going to do that? She reached into her pocket and the doll whispered, Don't worry, I will take care of it. That night Baba Yaga snored off to sleep and Vasilisa tried to pick the poppy seeds and out of the dirt. After a time the doll said to her, Sleep now, all will be well. 
Again the doll accomplished these tasks and when the old woman returned home, all was done. Baba Yaga spoke sarcastically through her nose. Well, lucky for you that you were able to do these things. She called for her faithful servants to press the oil from the poppy seeds and again three pairs of hands appeared and did so. While the Yaga was smearing her lips with grease from her stew, Vasilisa stood nearby. So, what are you staring at? Oh, sorry, Vasilisa stood nearby. So, what are you staring at? barked Baba Yaga. Uh, may I ask you some questions, Grandmother? asked Vasilisa. Ask, ordered the Yaga. But remember, too much knowledge can make a person old too soon. Vasilisa asked about the white man on a white horse. Ah, said the Yaga fondly, that first is my day. And the red man on the red horse? Ah, that is my rising sun. And the black man on the black horse? Ah, yes, that is the third and he is my knight. I see, said Vasilisa. Come, come, child, wouldn't you like to ask more questions, Whittle the Yaga? Vasilisa was about to ask about the pairs of hands that appeared and disappeared, but the doll began to jump up and down in her pocket. So instead, Vasilisa said, No, grandmother, as you yourself say, to know too much can make one old too soon. Ah, the Yaga said, cocking her head like a bird. You are wiser than your years, my girl, and how did you come to be this way? Uh, by the blessing of my mother, smiled Vasilisa. Blessing? screeched Baba Yaga. Blessing? We need no blessings around this house. You'd best be on your way, daughter. She pushed Vasilisa outdoors. I'll tell you what, child. Here. Baba Yaga took a skull with fiery eyes from her fence and put it on a stick. Here. Take this skull on a stick home with you. There, there's your fire. Don't say another word, just be on your way. Vasilisa began to thank the Yaga, but the little doll in her pocket began to jump up and down. And Vasilisa realized she must just take the fire and go. She ran home, following the turns and twists in the road with the doll telling her which way to go. It was night and Vasilisa came home through the forest with a skull on a stick. The fire blazing from the ear, eye, nose and mouth holes of the skull. Suddenly she became frightened of its eerie light and thought to throw it away. But the skull spoke to her and urged her to calm herself and to continue toward the home of her stepmother and stepsisters. As Vasilisa came nearer and nearer to her house, her stepmother and stepsisters looked out the window and saw a strange glow dancing through the woods. Closer and closer it came. They could not imagine what it could be. They had decided that Vasilisa's long absence meant she was dead by now and her bones dragged away by animals and good riddance. Vasilisa advanced closer and closer to home and as the stepmother and stepsisters saw it was her, they ran to her saying they had been without fire since they, she had left and no matter how hard they had tried to start one, it always went out. Vasilisa entered the house feeling triumphant for she had sur survived her dangerous journey and brought fire back to her home. But the skull on the stick watched the stepsisters and stepmothers 
every move and burned into them. And by morning it had burned the wicked trio to cinders. And there we have it, an abrupt ending to kick people out of the fairy tale and back into reality again. There are many endings of this story on in fairy tales. They are the equivalent of saying boo to bring listeners back to mundane reality. Hello. So here we are again. Vasilisa. What an amazing story. I read further from the book Women Who Run With The Wolves. The explanation of the story by the same author, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, in her same book. <laughs> I guess I just can't have enough of this book. And there we have it. An abrupt ending to kick out, kick people out of the fairy tale and back into reality again. There are many endings of this sort in fairy tales. They are the equivalent of saying boo to bring listeners back to mundane reality. Vasilisa is a story of handing down the blessing on women's power of intuition from mother to daughter, from one generation to the next. This great power, intuition, is composed of lightning fast inner seeing, inner hearing, inner sensing, and inner knowing. <clears throat> Over generations, these intuitive powers became as buried streams within women, buried by disrepute and disuse. However, Jung once remarked that nothing was ever lost in the psyche. We can be confident that things lost in the psyche are all still there. So too, this well of women's instinctual intuition has never been lost and whatever is covered over can be brought back out again. Oh, what good news. Join me in pausing ever so often while listening to a story. You may be driving, you may be working in the kitchen or a factory or at some mundane task on your table or drawing or painting. And just pause sometimes in the middle of having so much flow, whether you're having fun or not. Take a sip of tea with me. It's so good. To grasp such a tale, we understand that all its components represent a single woman's psyche. So all aspects of the story belong to a single psyche undergoing an initiatory process. Initiation is enacted by completing certain tasks. In this tale, there are nine tasks for the psyche to complete. They focus on learning the old ways of the wild old mother. <clears throat> By the completion of these tasks, a woman's intuition, that knowing being who walks wherever women walk, looking at all things in their lives and commenting on the truth of it all with 
swift accuracy is reset into women's psyche. The goal is a loving and trusting relationship with this being whom we have come to call the knowing woman, the wild woman. In the right of the old wild female goddess, Baba Yaga, these are the tasks of initiation. The first task, allowing the too good mother to die. In the opening of the tale, the mother is dying and bequeaths to her daughter an important legacy. The psychic tasks of this stage in a woman's life are these. Accepting that the ever-watchful, hovering, protective psychic mother is not adequate as a central guide for one's future instinctual life, the too good mother dies. Taking on the task of being on one's own developing one's, one's own consciousness about danger, intrigue, politic. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'm just recovering from a bit of a flu. <coughs> and it's left me with this fatigue sort of headache. So this tea is really for that. And telling myself stories, listening to myself, tell those stories, is one of the most healing things I've come across. Not so much as listening to the words, which are amazing, but also the, no, no, not so much is not correct. It's as much as listening to this amazing story and the words of Clarissa Pinkola S., I think my psyche is feeling healed listening to the sound of my voice, which is, while telling a story, the sound is so unbiased, is so participatory, and in the sense of coming from a place of offering. So I always look forward to this moment every day where I can read you the stories and read it to my inner psyche too. There's some really amazing healing going on here. I would love to share that. All right, let's continue. Taking on the task of being on one's own, developing one's own consciousness about danger, intrigue, politic, becoming alert by oneself for oneself, Letting die what must die. As the too good mother dies, a new woman is born. In the tale, the initiatory process begins when the dear and good mother dies. She's not there to touch Vasilisa's hair anymore. In all our lives as daughters, there is a time when the good mother of the psyche, the one which served us appropriately and well in earlier times, turns into a too good mother one which by virtue of her safeguarding values begins to prevent us from responding to new challenges and thereby to deeper development. Dear reader, listener, if you are someone like me who is going through menopause, perhaps you can look at menopause as one such initiation as I'm trying to. There is not such a big problem but a whole reorientation of mind, body, self to something new. 
And that sound that you just heard is my neighbor upstairs moving some furniture at around 11 in the night. <laughs> All right, here we continue. In the natural process of our maturing, the two good mother must become thinner and thinner, must dwindle away until we are left to care for ourselves in a new way. While we always retain a core of her warmth, this natural psychic transition leaves us on our own in a world that is not motherly to us. But wait, this too good mother is not all she at first seems. Under a blanket she has a tiny doll to give her daughter. Ah, there is something of the wild mother underneath this figure. But the too good mother cannot completely live this out, for she is the milk-teeth mother, the blessed one every baby needs in order to gain a toehold in the psychic world of love. So even though this too good mother cannot live beyond a certain point in a girl's life, she does right by her offspring. She blesses her with the doll, and this, as we see, is a great blessing indeed. This dramatic psychological dwindling of the mother first occurs as a girl moves from the fur-lined nest of pre-adolescence to the jolting jungle of adolescence. For some girls, however, the process of developing a new, more shrewd inner mother, the mother called intuition, was only half completed then. And women who inducted uh, women so inducted have wandered for years wishing for and wanting the complete initiatory experience and patching themselves up as best they could. This, this arrest in a woman's initiation process occurs for various reasons, such as when there has been too much psychological hardship early in one's life. There's been no consistent good enough mother in the early years. The initiation may also be stalled or uncompleted because there is not enough tension in the psyche. The too good mother has the stamina of a formidable weed and lives on, waving her leaves and protect, overprotecting her daughter, even though the script says, exit, stage, left, now. In this situation, women often feel too timid to proceed into the woods and resist it all they can. This speaks to me so much and I must interrupt while I read to you, dear reader and listener, that this is so I relate to because I believe I had this similar experience of having a very hard early years and not uh, to good enough to good mother <laughs> and it left me wanting and seeking and I think I speak to a lot of my clients and friends and I think we all carry the sense of there's a hole there is some dissatisfaction that can never be filled there's something that is so uh, inherently incomplete in us that and we're so aware of it it's Another way of looking at it would be that, yes, we were looking for the next stage of growing up. And for that, something amazing that helped me was becoming a mother to my child and offering both of us together what he really needed. So as a baby, if he needed a lot of play, I gave that to myself too, a lot of it. 
And now as a teenager, he requires space and self-expression. I give that to myself and I find myself stage by stage along with my child growing up in the, let's say, more conscious way. And I am very grateful to the childhood early years I had because that <clears throat> blasted open so many gifts and of course it blasted it open and lay, laid it all scattered all around. But now in the second stage of initiation, it seems to be placing it all in a neat order all by itself and asking me to relax, play, pause and connect. I love connecting with you and I shall continue. Thank you. For these as well as other adult women for whom the rigors of life itself chip and distance them from their deeply intuitive lives and those whose pliant is orphaned, I am so tired of taking care of myself. There is a good and wise remedy. A retracing or reinitiation will reset the deep intuition regardless of a woman's age. And it is the deep intuition that knows what is good for us, knows what we need next, and knows it with lightning speed, if we will just take down its dictation. That's exactly what I shared with you just before reading this paragraph. It's that re-initiation, retracing I could do with my child was amazing. So very, very feeling, very grateful and so happy to share this with you. Yes, time for another sip and another pause. Vasilisa's initiation begins with learning to let die what must die. This means to let die the values and attitudes within the psyche which no longer sustain her. Especially to be examined are those long-held tenets which make life too safe, which overprotect, which make women walk with a scurry instead of a stride. The time when the childhood positive mother dwindles and her attitudes die away as well is always a time of great learning. Although there is a time in all our lives during which we rightfully remain close to the protective mother, for instance, when we are actual children, or during recovery from an illness or psychological or spiritual trauma, or when our lives are in danger and being quiet will keep us safe. And even though we retain large stores of her sucker for life, though there also comes a time to change mothers, so to speak. If we stay overly long with the protective mother within our own psyches, we find ourselves impeding all challenges to ourselves and therefore blocking further development. While I do not in any way mean to say that a woman should throw herself into a torturous or abusive situation, I do mean she must set for herself a something in life that she is willing to reach for and therefore take risks for it. It is through this process that she sharpens her intuitive powers. Among wolves, when a wolf mother nurses her pups, she and they spend much time lazing about. Everyone slumps over everyone else in a great puppy pile. The outer world and the world of challenges are far away. However, when the wolf mother finally trains the pups to hunt and forage, 
She shows them her teeth more often than not. She snaps and demands they keep up. She shoves them down if they don't do what she requires. And so it is in order to pursue further development that we exchange the hovering internal mother which was so apt for us when we were young for another kind of mother. One who lives even deeper in the psychic wilderlands. One who is both escort and teacher. She is a loving mother but also fierce and demanding. Most of us will not let the too good mother die just because it is time. Although this too good mother may not allow more our most vivid energies to surface, it is so nice with her, so comfortable. Why leave? Often we hear voices within our minds which encourage us to hold back, to stay safe. These voices say things like, Ooh, don't say that. Or, you can't do that. Or, well, you're certainly not one of my children, friends, peers, if you do that. Or, it's dangerous out there. Or, who knows what will become of you if you insist on leaving this warm nest. Or, you're just going to humiliate yourself, you know. Or even more insidious still, pretend you are taking risks but secretly stay here with me. These are all voices of the frightened and rather exasperated to good mother within the psyche. She cannot help herself. She is what she is. Yet if we merge with the too good mother for too long, our lives and our gifts for expression fall into the shadow and we become scant instead of strong. And worse, what occurs when one compresses a vivid energy and allows it no life, like the magic porridge pot in the wrong hands, Oops, the page wouldn't turn. I'm sorry. (coughs) Like the magic porridge pot, in the wrong hands it grows and grows and grows until it explodes, spilling all of its goodness onto the ground. So we must be able to see that for the intuitive psyche to be invigorated, the nice hovering protector must recede. Or perhaps more accurately, Sorry about that, but I will stop in a few minutes as I finish this second part of the chapter. Or perhaps more accurately, we eventually find ourselves pushed out of that nice, cozy tete-a-tete, not because we planned it that way, not because we were completely ready. No one is ever completely ready, but because there is something waiting for us at the edge of the woods and it is our fate to meet it. Gualiomi Apollinaire wrote, We took them to the edge and bid them fly. They held on. Fly, we said. They held on. We pushed them over the edge and they flew. It is typical for women to be afraid to let the too comfortable and too safe life die. 
Sometimes a woman has revelled in the protection of the too good mother and so desires to continue ad infinitum. She must be willing to feel anxious sometimes, otherwise she must as well have stayed in the, in the nest. Sometimes a woman is afraid to be without security or without certainty for even a short time. She has more excuses than dogs have hairs. She must just simply dive in and stand, not knowing what will happen next. <clears throat> it is the only thing which will retrieve her intuitive nature. Sometimes a woman is so bound up in being the too good mother to other adults that they have latched on to her tetas, teats, and are not about to let her leave them. In this case, a woman has to kick them off with her hind leg and go on anyway. <clears throat> and since the dreaming psyche compensates for, among other things, that which the ego will not or cannot acknowledge, a woman's dreams during such a struggle will be filled compensatorily with chases, dead ends, cars that will not start, incomplete pregnancies and other symbols which image life not going other symbols which image life not going forward in her guts a woman knows there is a deadline i'm sorry in her guts a woman knows there are there is a deadliness in which the too sweet self for too long <clears throat> i'm sorry in her guts, a woman knows there is a deadliness in being the too sweet self for too long. So loosening a hold on the glowing archetype of the ever sweet and too good mother of the psyche is the first step. We are off the teat and learning to hunt. There is a wild mother waiting to teach us. But in the meantime, the second task is to hold on to the doll while we learn its uses. <sighs> and I shall end here today. The second task is exposing the crude shadow tomorrow. Good night. The second task, exposing the crude shadow. In this part of the tale, the bad rotten step family marches into Vasilisa's world and begins to make her life miserable. The tasks of this time are learning even more mindfully to let go of the overly positive mother, finding that being good, being sweet, being nice will not cause life to sing. Vasilisa becomes a slave, but does it, does it help? Experiencing directly one's own shadow nature, particularly the exclusionary jealous and exploitative aspects of self, the stepmother and stepsisters. Owning these, making the best relationship one can with the worst parts of oneself, letting the pressure build between who one is taught to be and who one really is, ultimately working toward letting the old self die and the new intuitive self be born. The stepmother and stepsisters represent the undeveloped but provocatively mean elements of the psyche. They are sh shadow elements, mean aspects of oneself which are considered by the ego undesirable or not useful and are therefore relegated to the dark. Shadow material can be very positive 
for often a woman's gifts are also pushed into the dark. But negative shadow material can also be useful, as we shall see. For when it erupts and we finally specify those aspects and their sources, we are made all the stronger and wiser. In this stage of initiation, a woman is harassed by the petty demands of her psyche, which exhort her to comply with whatever anyone wishes. Compliance causes a shocking realization that must be registered by all women. That is, to be ourselves causes us to be exiled by many others, and yet to comply with what others want causes us to be exiled from ourselves. It is a tormenting tension and it must be borne, but the choice is clear. Vasilisa is disenfranchised, for she inherits and is inherited by a family that cannot understand or appreciate her. As far as they are concerned, she is unnecessary. They hate and revile her. They treat her as the stranger, the untrustworthy one. In fairy tales, the role of the stranger or the outcast is usually played by the one who is most deeply connected to the knowing nature. The stepmother and stepsisters can be understood as creatures set in a woman's psyche by the culture to which a woman belongs. The stepfamily in the psyche is perhaps is different from the soul family, for it is of the superego, that aspect of psyche which is structured according to each particular society's expectations, healthy or not, for women. These cultural that is, super-ego overlays and injunctions are not experienced by women as emanating from the soul-self-psyche, but far felt as if they come out from there, from some other source which is not innate. The cultural super-ego overlays can be very positive or they can be very detrimental. Vasilisa's step-family is an intra-psychic ganglia which pinches off the nerve to life's vitality. They enter as a chorus of unredeemed hags who taunt, You can't do it. You're not good enough. You're not bold enough. You're stupid, insipid, vacant. You don't have time. You're only good for simple things. You're only allowed to do this much and no more. Give up while you're ahead. As Vasilisa is not yet fully conscious of her power, she allows this evil crimp in her lifeline. In order for her to regain her life, something different, something life-giving must occur. The same is true for us. We can see in the story that Vasilisa's intuition into what is happening around her is quite flimsy and that the father of the psyche doesn't notice the hostile environment either. He is also too good and has no intuitive development himself. It is interesting to note that daughters who have naive fathers often take far longer to awaken. We too are pinched off when the fa- stepfamily within us and or around us tells us we are not much to begin with and insists we focus on our shortcomings rather than perceiving the cruelty whirling around us, be it within our psyches or without in the culture. However, to see into or through something requires intuition and also the strength to stand upon what one sees. We may have been taught to set aside acute insight in order to get along. However, the reward for being nice in oppressive circumstances is to be mistreated more. 
although a woman feels that if she is herself, she will alienate others. It is just this psychic tension that is needed in order to make soul and to create change. So the stepmother and stepsister scheme to send Vasilisa away. They secretly plot, go into the forest, Vasilisa, go to Baba Yaga. And if you survive, ha-ha, which you won't, then we might accept you. This is a very critical idea because many women are stuck halfway through this initiation process, sort of hanging half in the half out of the half in and half out of the hoop. Although there is a natural predator in the psyche, one who says die and bah and why don't you give up? Or rather automatic biases on a rather automatic basis. The culture in which a woman lives and the family in which she was raised can painfully exacerbate that natural but moderate no-saying aspect in the psyche. For instance, women who are raised in families that are not accepting of their gifts often set off on tremendously big quests over and over. They do not know why. They feel they must have three PhDs or that they have to hang upside down from Mount Everest or that they must execute all manner of dangerous, time-consuming and money-eating endeavours to try to prove to their families that they have worth. Now, will you accept me? No? Okay. <sighs> Watch this. The step-family ganglia, of course, belongs to us by whichever means we received it, and it is our work to deal with it in an empowered manner. However, we can see that for the deep work to continue trying to prove one's worth, to the chorus of jealous hags is pointless and as we shall see in fact impedes the in initiation. Vasilisa does the everyday chores without complaint. To submit without complaint is heroic seeming but in fact causes more and more pressure and conflict between the two oppositional natures, one too good and the other too demanding. Like the conflict between being over adaptive and being oneself, this pressure builds to a good end. A woman who is torn between these two is in a good way, but she must take the next steps. In the story, the stepwomen so squeeze the psychic force that by their mechanicians, the fire goes out. At this point, a woman begins to lose her psychic bearings. She may feel cold, alone and willing to do anything to bring back the light again. This is just the jolt that two nice women woman needs to continue her induction into her own power. One night, one might say that Vasilisa has to go meet the great wild hag because she needs a good scare. We have to leave the chorus of detractors and plunge into the woods. There is no way to both stay and go. Vasilisa, like us, needs some guiding light that will differentiate for her what is good for her and what is not. She cannot develop by standing around being everyone's bootjack. Women who try to make their deeper feelings invisible are deadening themselves. The light goes out. It is a painful form of suspended animation. Conversely, and perhaps somewhat perversely, when the fire is put out, it helps to snap Vasilisa out of her submission. It causes her to die to an old way of life and to step with shivers into a new life one which is based on an older, wiser kind of inner knowing. And that was the second task. We will read the third task a little later. Thank you.
And so we continue. The third task, navigating in the dark. In this tale, in this part of the tale, the dead mother's legacy, the doll, guides Vasilisa through the dark to the house of Baba Yaga. These are the psychic tasks of this time, consenting to venture into the locus of deep initiation, that is, entering the forest, and beginning to experience the new and dangerous feeling, Newman, of being in one's intuitive power, learning to develop sensitivity as regards direction to the mysterious unconscious, and relying solely on one's inner senses, learning the way back home to the wild mother, that is, heeding the doll's directions, learning to feed intuition, that is, feeding the doll, letting the frail knowing, know nothing made and die even more. Shifting power to the doll, that is, intuition. Vasilisa's doll is from the provisions of the old wild mother. Dolls are one of the symbolic treasures of the instinctual nature. In Vasilisa's case, the doll represents Vidachitta. Vidachitta, but I feel it is Vidachitta. The little instinctual life force that is both fierce and enduring. No matter what mess we are in, it lives out a life hidden within us. For centuries, humans have felt that dolls emanate both a holiness and mana, an awesome and compelling prescience which acts upon persons, changing them spiritually. For instance, the mandrake root is praised for its resemblance to the human body, with arms and legs of root, and a gnarl for a head and is said to be charged with great spiritual power. Dolls are believed to be infused with life by their makers. They are used in rites, ritual, voodoo, hoodoo, love spells and mischief. They are used as markers of authority and talismans to remind one of one's own power. Museums through the world are filled to overflowing with idols and figurines made of clay and wood and metals. The figurines from, from Paleolithic and Neolithic times are dolls. Art galleries are filled with dolls. In modern art, seagulls' life-size gauze-wrapped mummies are dolls. Ethnic dolls fill railway gift shops and the gas stations on major interstates. Among royalty, dolls have been given as gifts since ancient times as tokens of goodwill. In rustic churches throughout the world, there are saint dolls. The saint dolls are not only bathed on a regular basis and dressed in handmade clothing, but also taken for walks so they might see the conditions of the fields and of the people and therefore intercede with heaven in the human's behalf. The doll is a symbolic homunculi, little life. It is a symbol of what lies buried in humans that is numinous. It is a small and glowing facsimile of the original self. Superficially, it is just a doll. But inversely, there is a little piece of soul that carries all the knowledge of the larger soul self.
in the door is the voice in diminutive of old la qcb the no the one who knows the doll is related to the symbols of leprechaun elf pixie fairy and dwarf in fairy tales these represent a deep throb of wisdom within the culture of the psyche they are those creatures which go on with the canny and interior work who are tireless they work even when we sleep most especially when we sleep even when we are not fully conscious of what we are enacting in this way the doll represents the inner spirit of us as women the voice of inner reason inner knowing and inner consciousness the doll is like the little bird in fairy tales who comes and whispers in the heroine's ear the one who reveals a hidden enemy and what to do about it all this is the wisdom of the homunculus the small being within it is a helper which is not seeable but which is always accessible there is no greater blessing a mother can give her daughter than a reliable sense of the veracity of her own intuition intuition is handed from parent to child in the simplest ways you have good judgment what do you think lies hidden behind all this rather than defining intuition as some unreason faulty quirk it is defined as truly the soul's soul voice speaking intuition senses the direction to go in for most benefit it is self preserving has a grasp of underlying motive and intention it chooses what will cause the least amount of fragmenting in the psyche The process is the same in the fairy tale. Vasilisa's mother has set an enormous boon on her daughter by binding the doll and Vasilisa to one another. Being bound to one's intuition promotes a confident reliance on it, no matter what. It changes a woman's guiding attitude from what will be, will be, to let me see all there is to see. What does the wildish intuition do for women? <coughs> Like the wolf intuition has claws that pry things open and pin things down it has eyes that can see through the shields of persona it has ears that hear beyond the range of mundane human hearing with these formidable psychic tools a woman takes on a shrewd and even precognitive animal consciousness one that deepens her femininity and sharpens her ability to move confidently in the outer world so now <clears throat> Vasilisa is on her way to gain light for the fire. She is in the dark, in the wilds, and can do nothing but listen to the inner voice coming from the doll. She is learning to rely on that relationship, and she is learning yet one more thing. She learns to feed the doll. what does one feed intuition so that it is consistently nourished and responsive to our request to scan our environs one feeds it life one feeds it life by listening to it what good is a voice without a ear to receive it what good is a woman in the wilds of pegatrophones pegatro megatropolis or daily lives unless 
and daily life unless she can hear and depend upon the voice of Lakeus Bay, the one who knows. I've heard women say it, if not a hundred times, then a thousand times. I knew I should have listened to my intuition. I sensed that I should, should not have done such and such, but I didn't listen. We feed the deep intuitive self by listening to it and acting upon its ad- advice. It is a personage in its own right, a magical dollish-sized being which inhabits the psychic land of the interior woman. In this way, it is like the muscles in the body. If a muscle is not used, eventually it withers. Intuition is exactly like that. Without food, without employment, it atrophies. The feeding of the doll is an essential cycle of wild women. She who is the keeper of hidden treasures... Vasilisa feeds the doll in two ways, first with a bit of bread, a bit of life for this new psychic venture, and secondly by finding her way to the old wild mother, the Baba Yaga. By listening to the doll, at every turn and every fork in the road, the doll indicates which way is home. The relationship between the doll and Vasilisa symbolizes a form of sympathetic, empathic magic between woman and her intuition. This is the thing that must be handed down from woman to woman, this blessed binding, testing and feeding of intuition. We, like Vasilisa, strengthen our bond with our intuition, intuitive nature by listening inwardly at every turn in the road. Should I go this way or this way? Should I say stay or go? Should I resist or be flexible? Should I run away or toward? Is this person event venture true or false? The breaking of the bond between a woman and a wildish intuition is often misunderstood as the intuition itself being broken. This is not the fact. It is not intuition which is broken, but rather the matrilineal blessing on intuition, the handing down of intuitive reliance between a woman and all females of her lines, who have gone before her. It is that long river of women that has been dammed. As in a dam. Dammed. Not D-A-M-N-E-D. Just dam. Like a water dam. A woman's grasp of her intuitive wisdom may be weak as a result. But with exercise it will come back and become fully manifested. The all serve as talisman. Talismans are reminders of what is felt but not seen, what is so but is not immediately obvious. The talismanic numen of the doll is that it reminds us, tells us, sees ahead for us. The intuitive function belongs to all women. This intuitive function belongs to all women. It is a massive and fundamental receptivity, not receptivity as once touted in classical psychology. That is a passive vessel, but receptivity as in possessing immediate access to a profound wisdom that teaches to to women's very, that reaches to women's very bones. Apologies for all the glitches, but I believe I'm still recovering. Or let's just blame the menopausal memory. (laughs) With this, this part is over and We will begin the fourth task facing the wild hag tomorrow. Good night, my friend.
Let us continue. The fourth task, facing the wild hag. In this part of the tale, Vasilisa meets the wild hag face to face. The tasks of this meeting are these: being able to stand the face of, being able to stand the face of the fearsome wild goddess without wavering. That is meeting up with the Baba Yaga, familiarizing oneself with the arcane, the odd, the otherness of the wild. That is residing at Baba Yaga's house for a while, taking some of her values into our lives, thereby becoming ourselves a little odd. That is eating her food, learning to face great power in others, and subsequently one's own power, letting the frail and too sweet child die. E back even further. Baba Yaga lives in a house squatting on chicken legs. It whirls and spins when it has a mind to. In dreams, the symbol of house comments on the organization of the psychic space a person inhabits, both consciously and unconsciously. Ironically, if this were a compensatory dream, the eccentric house would infer that the subject, in this case Vasilisa, is too unremarkable, too middle of the road, and needs to twirl and whirl in order to find out what it's like to dance like a crazy chicken once in a while. Now we can see that the Yaga's house is of the animal world, and that Vasilisa needs this element in her personality. This chicken-legged house walks about, twirls even. In some hippity hop dance, this house is alive, bursting with enthusiasm, with joyous life. This is the main fundament of the psyche of wild women, a joyous wild life force, where houses dance, where inanimate such as mortars fly, like birds, where the old woman can make magic, where nothing is what it seems, but for the most part, is better than it seemed to begin with. Vasilisa began. With what we might call a flattened-out, mundane personality, it is just this hypernormalcy that creeps up on us till we have a routine life, and a lifeless life, and a lifeless life without a really meaning to. This encourages the neglect of intuition, which in turn produces lack of light in the psyche. We must do something. Then we must set out into the woods, go find the scary, scary woman, or else one day we are nodding down the street. A manhole cover will snap open, and whoosh, we will be snatched up by some unconscious thing that will throw us about like a rag, joyously or otherwise, mostly otherwise, but for good outcome. The giving of the intuitive doll by the original sweet mother is incomplete without the task giving and testing done by the old wild one. Baba Yaga is the narrow marrow of wild woman. We know this from her knowledge of all that has gone before. Oh yes, she says when Vasilisa arrives. I know of you and your people. Further, as in her other incarnations, as the mother of days and mother Nix. Mother Night, the life, death, life goddess, old Baba Yaga is the keeper of the sky and earth beings, day, rising sun and night. She calls them my day, my night. Baba Yaga is fearsome, for she is the power of annihilation and the power of the life force at the same time. To gaze into her face is to see vagina dentate, eyes of blood, the perfect. Newborn child and the wings of angels all at once, and Vasilisa stands there, 
and accepts the wild mother divinity, what's and all. One of the most remarkable facets of the Yaga portrayed in this tale is that though she threatens, she is just. She does not hurt Vasilisa as long as Vasilisa affords her respect. Respect in the face of great power is a crucial lesson. A woman must be able to stand in the face of power because ultimately some of that power will become hers. Vasilisa faces Baba Yaga not ubiquitously, not boastfully or filled with braggadocio, (laughs) neither running away nor hiding. She presents herself honestly and just as herself. Many women are in recovery from their nice-nice complexes wherein no matter how they felt, no matter how assailed them, who assailed them, they responded so sweetly as to be practically fattening. Though they might have smiled kindly during the day, at night they gnashed their teeth like brutes. The yaga in their psyches was fighting for expression. This too nice over-adaptation in women often occurs when they are desperately afeared of being disenfranchised or found unnecessary. Two of the most poignant dreams I have ever heard concerned a young woman who definitely needed to be less tame. The first dream was that she inherited a photo album, a special one with pictures of the wild mother. How happy she was until the next week when she dreamed she opened a similar album and there was a horrid old woman looking out at her. The hag was possessed of mossy teeth and had black beetle juice running down her chin. Her dream is typical of women who are recovering from being too sweet. The first dream demonstrates one side of the wild nature, the benign and bountiful, and all that is well with her world. But when the mossy wild woman is represented to her, well, uh, uh, could we put this off for a while? The answer is no. The unconscious in its brilliant way is offering this dreamer an idea about a new way of living that is not just the two-toothed frontal smile of the too nice woman. To face the wild power in ourselves is to gain access to the myriad faces of the subterrene feminine. These belong to us innately and we may choose to inhabit whichever ones serve us best or whichever at whichever time. In this initiation drama, Baba Yaga is wild woman in the guise of the witch. Like the word wild, the word witch has come to be understood as pejorative. But long ago, it was an appellation given to both old and young women healers, the word witch deriving from the word wit, meaning wise. This was before the one God-only religions began to overwhelm the older wild mother religions. But regardless, the ogress, the witch, the wild nature and whatever other creaturas and aspects of the culture finds awful in the psyches of women are the very blessed things which women need most to retrieve and bring to the surface. A good deal of literature on the subject of women's power states that men are afraid of women's power. I always want to exclaim, Mother of God, so many women themselves are afraid of women's power. For the old feminine attributes and forces are vast and they are formidable. 
it is understandable that the first time they come face to face with the old wild powers, both men and women take one anxious look and make a, make tracks. All you see of them is flying paw pads and frightened tails. If men are going to ever learn to stand it, then without a doubt, women have to learn to stand it. If men are ever going to understand women, women are going to have to teach the configurations of the wild feminine to them. To this end, the dream-making function of the psyche carries the yaga and all her cohorts right into women's bedrooms at night through the dream time. If we are lucky, the yaga will leave her big broad footprints in the carpet at our bedsides. She will come to peer at those who do not know her. If we are late to our initiations, the wonders she wonders why we do not come to visit her and comes to visit us in night dreams instead. One woman I worked with dreamed of women in long ragged nightgowns happily eating things you would never find on a restaurant menu. Another woman dreamed of an old woman in the shape of an old clawfoot bathtub that rattled its pipes and threatened to burst them unless the dreamer knocked out a wall so the tub could see. <laughs> Another woman dreamt that she was one of three blind old women except she kept losing her driver's license and had to keep leaving her group to find it. In other words, she had a hard time remaining identified with the three fates the powers which guide life and death in the psyche. But in time, she too learned to stand it, learned to stay close to her own wildish nature. All these creatures and dreams remind the woman dreamer of her elemental self, the yaga self, the enigmatic and intense power of the life-death-life mother. Yes, we are saying that to be yagaish is good and that we must be able to stand it. To be strong does not mean to sprout muscles and flex. It means meeting one's own luminosity without fleeing, actively living with the wild nature in one's own way. It means to be able to learn, to be able to stand what we know. It means to stand and live. Wasn't that wonderful? I hope you enjoyed. Be well, my friends. we continue. The fifth task, serving the non-rational. In this part of the tale, Vasilisa has asked Baba Yaga for fire and the Yaga agrees if Vasilisa will do some household chores for her in exchange. The psychic tasks of this time of learning are these, staying with the hag goddess, acclimating to the great wildish powers of the feminine psyche, coming to recognize her, your power, and the powers of inner purifications, unsoiling, sorting, nourishing, building energy and ideas, washing the yaga's clothes, cooking for her, cleaning her house and sorting out the elements. Not so long ago, women were deeply involved in the rhythms of life and death. They inhaled the pungent odour of iron from the fresh blood of childbirth. They washed the cooling bodies of the dead as well. The psyches of modern women, especially those from industrial and technological cultures, are often deprived of these close-up and hands-on blessed and basic experiences. 
but there is a way for the novice to fully participate in the sensitive aspects of the life and death cycles. Baba Yaga, the wild mother, is the teacher whom we can consult in these matters. She instructs the ordering of the house of the soul. She imbues an alternate order to the ego, one where magic can happen, joy can be done, appetite is intact, things are accomplished with gusto. Baba Yaga is the model for being true to the self. She teaches both death and renewal. In the tale, she teaches Vasilisa how to take care of the psychic house of the wild feminine. Laundering the Baba Yaga's clothes is a fabulous symbol. In the old countries, and still today, to launder one's clothes, one depends, descends to the river, and there makes the ritualistic ablutions that people have made since the beginning of time in order to renew the cloth. This is a very fine symbol for a cleansing and purification of the entire bearing of the psyche. In mythology, the woven cloth is the work of the life-death-life mothers. For instance, in the East, there were the, there are the three fates, Clotho, Lachesis and Atropos. In the West, there is Nashejehi Asda, Asdaza, the spider woman, who gave the gift of weaving to the Navajo. These life-death-life mothers teach women's sensitivity to, to what shall be carded out, to what shall be woven in. In the tale, Baba Yaga charges Vasilisa to the laundry to bring this weaving, these patterns of life, death, life, goddess, out into the open, to consciousness, washing them, renewing them, to wash something is a timeless purification ritual. It not only means to purify, it also means like baptism from the Latin baptiza, to drench, to permeate with a spiritual numen and mystery. In the tale, the washing is the first task. It means to make taut again that which has become slackened from the wearing. The clothes are like us. <clears throat> Worn and worn until our ideas and values are slackened by the passing of time. The renewal, the revivifying, takes place in the water, in the rediscovering of what we really hold to be true, what we really hold sacred. In archetypal symbolism, clothing represents persona. The first view the public gains of us, persona is a kind of camouflage which lets others know only what we wish them to know about us and nothing more. But there is an older meaning to persona, one found in all the Mesoamerican rites, one well known to cantadoras, why quintististas, storytellers. The persona is not simply a mask to hide behind, but rather a presence which eclipses the mundane personality. In this sense, persona or mask is a signal of rank, virtue, character and authority. The persona is the outward signific significator, the outward display of mastery. I like very much this initiatory task which requires a woman to cleanse the personae, the clothing of authority of the great yaga of the forest. 
by washing the yaga's clothes the initiate herself will see how the seams of persona are sewn what patterns the gowns take soon she herself will have some measure of these personae to hang in her closet amidst others she has fashioned throughout her life it is easy to imagine that the yaga's marks of power and authority her clothes are made as she herself is fashioned psychologically strong enduring so to wash her laundry is a metaphor through which we learn to witness and take on this combination of qualities and also to know how to sort mend renew these qualities by the purification the washing of the fibers of being vasilisa's next task is to sweep the hut and the yard the eastern european <coughs> in eastern european fairy tales brooms are often made of sticks from trees and bushes and sometimes the roots of wiry plants vasilisa's work is to sweep this object made of plant matter over the floors and the yard to keep the place clear of debris a wise woman keeps her psychic environment uncluttered she accomplishes accomplishes such by keeping a clear head keeping a clear place for her work working at completing her ideas and projects for many women this task requires of them that they clear a time each day for completion for a space to live in that is clearly their own with paper pens paints tools conversations time freedoms that are for their work only for many psychoanalysis and other experiences of descent and transformation provide this special time and place for the work each woman has her own preferences her own way if this work can take place in baba yaga's hut so much the better even near the hut is better than far away in any event one's wildlife has to be kept ordered on a regular basis it is not good enough to go to it for one day once a year but because it is baba yaga's hut that vasilisa sweeps because it is baba yaga's yard we are also speaking of keeping unusual ideas clear and ordered these ideas include those which are uncommon mystical soulful and uncanny to sweep the premises means not only to begin to value the non superficial life but to care for its orderliness sometimes women become confused about soulful work and leave its architecture all in a mess till it is taken back by the forest gradually it becomes overgrown and finally becomes a hidden archaeological ruin in the psyche the cyclical sweeping will prevent this from occurring when women have clear space the wild nature can better thrive to cook for baba yaga we ask literally how does one feed the baba yaga of the psyche what does one feed so wild a goddess firstly to cook for the yaga one lays a fire a woman must be willing to burn hot burn with passion burn with words with ideas with desire for whatever it is that she truly loves it is actually this passion which causes the cooking and a woman's ideas of substance are what is cooked to cook for the yaga one will arrange that one's creative life has a consistent fire under it
Most of us would be better if we became more adept at watching the fire under our work, if we watched more closely the cooking process for nourishing the wild self. Too often we turn away from the pot from the oven. We often forget to watch, forget to add fuel, forget to stir. We mistakenly think the fire and the cooking are like one of those fiesty houseplants that can go without water for eight months before the poor thing keels over. It is not so. The fire bears watching, for it is easy to let it go out. The yaga must be fed. There's hell to pay if she goes hungry. <clears throat> so, it is the cooking up of new things, of new directions, of commitments to one's art and work that continuously nourishes the wild soul. These same things nourish the old wild mother and give her sustenance in our psyches. Without the fire, our great ideas, our original thoughts, our yearnings and longings remain uncooked and everyone is unfulfilled. On the other hand, anything we do which has fire will please her and nourish us all. In the development of women, all these motions of homekeeping, the cooking, the washing, the sweeping, quantify something beyond the ordinary. All these metaphors offer ways to think about, to measure, feed, nourish, straighten, cleanse, order the soul life. In all these things, Vasilisa is initiated and her intuition helps her accomplish the tasks. The intuitive nature carries the ability to measure things at a glance, to weigh in an instant, to clear off the debris around an idea and to name the essence of the thing, to fire it with vitality, to cook raw ideas, to make food for the psyche. Vasilisa, through the doll of intuition, is learning to sort, understand, keep in order and clear and clean the psychic premises. Additionally, she learns that the wild mother requires much nourishment in order to do her work. Baba Yaga cannot be put on a lettuce leaf and and black coffee diet. If one wishes to to be close to the wild mother, one has to realize that she has appetite for certain things. If one has to have relationship with the ancient feminine, one must cook up much. Through these chores, Baba Yaga teaches and Vasilisa learns not to cringe away from the big, the mighty, the cyclical, the unforeseen, the unexpected, the vast grand scale which is the size of nature, the odd, the strange and the unusual. I think that's a big one. We need to take a breath together just to soak this one paragraph up. And I'm going to read it again. Through these chores, Baba Yaga teaches and Vasilisa learns not to cringe away from the big, the mighty, the cyclical, the unforeseen, the unexpected, the vast and grand scale which is the size of nature, the odd, the strange and the unusual. Women's cycles, according to Vasilisa's task, are these. To cleanse one's thinking, renewing one's values on a regular basis, to clear one's psyche of trivia, sweep oneself, clean up one's thinking 
and feeling states on a regular basis. To build creative fire and cook up ideas on a systematic basis. And especially to cook up a lot to feed the relationship between oneself and the wildish nature. Vasilisa, via her time with the Yaga, will eventually integrate some of the manner and style of the Yaga. And we too. It is our job, in our own limited human way, to pattern ourselves after her. And this we learn to do. Yet we are awed at the same time, for in Baba Yaga land, there are things that fly in the night and are arisen in daybreak, all summoned and bidden by the wild instinctual Apologies, something happened and got disconnected. I start from where I left. There are the bones of the dead which will speak and there are winds and fates and suns and moon and sky which all live in her great trunk. But she keeps order. Day follows night, season follows season. She's not haphazard. She is both rhyme and reason. In the story, the Yaga finds Vasilisa has completed all the tasks set before her and the Yaga is pleased, but also a little disappointed that she cannot rail against the woman, uh, against the girl. And so just to make sure Vasilisa doesn't take anything for granted, Baba Yaga says the equivalent of, Well, though you managed to do my work once, doesn't mean you can do it again. So here, here's another day of tasks. Let's see how you do, dearie, or else. Vasilisa, again, through the ability of intuitive guidance, accomplishes the work and the Yaga gives her the grumpy and begrudging stamp of approval. The kind that always comes from old women who have lived a long time and who have seen much and somewhat wish they hadn't and are rather proud they have. That completes... Our fifth task and the sixth task, separating this from that, coming up soon. Be well, my friends. And so the time to listen to stories returns. The time to listen to our own hearts through stories returns. The time to feed our soul with the pure numinosity of life itself. Let's listen to Clarissa Pinkola Est's The Sixth Task Separating This From That In this part of the tale, Baba Yaga requires two very demanding tasks of Vasilisa. A woman's psychic tasks are these. Learning fine discernation, separating one thing from the other with finest discernment, learning to make fine distinctions in judgment, sorting the mildewed corn from the good corn, and sorting the poppy seeds from a pile of dirt, observing the power of the unconscious and how it works even when the ego is not aware the pairs of hands which appear in the air. More learning about life, corn, and death, poppy seeds. Vasilisa is asked to separate four substances, mildewed corn from the whole corn and poppy seed from dirt, 
the intuitive doll completes the sorting of one from the other. Sometimes this sorting process occurs at such a deep level it is barely conscious to us until one day. The sorting spoken of in the tale is the kind which occurs when we face a dilemma or question, but not much is forthcoming to help us solve it. But leave it alone and come back to it later and there may be a good answer waiting for us where there was nothing before. Or go to sleep, see what you dream. Perhaps the two million year old woman will come visit you from the night land. Perhaps she will be bearing the solution or will show you that the answer is under your bed or in your pocket, in a book or behind your ear. It is a phenomenon that a question asked before bedtime, with practice, elicits an answer upon wakening. There is something in the psyche, something of which the wildish doll, something under, over or in the collective unconscious, which sorts the materials while we sleep and dream. And reliance on this attribute is also part of the wild nature. The mildewed corn has two meanings. As liquor, mildewed corn may be used both as an aberrative, inaberrative, inebriative and a medication. There is a fungal condition called corn smut, a rather fuzzy black fungus, which is found in mildewed corn, which is also re reputed to be hallucinogenic. It is hypnotized, hypothesized by various scholars that hallucinogens from wheat, barley, poppies or maize were used in the old Eleusinian goddess rites in Greece. Additionally, the sorting of the corn that the Yaga bids Vasilisa do is also related to the gathering of medicines by Kurandiras, the old woman healers. One can still observe at this work the old woman healers one can still observe at this work throughout Central and South America today. We see the woman healers ancient remedies and treatments also in the poppy seed, which is a soporific barbiturate as well as in the dirt which has been used since ancient times and is still used today in poultices and as packs baths and even for ingestions under certain circumstances this is one of the loveliest phrasings in the story the fresh corn mildewed corn poppy seed and dirt are all remnants of an ancient healing apothecary they are used as balms salvis infusions and poultices to hold other medicines on the body and as metaphors they are also medicines for the mind some nourish others put to rest some cause languor others stimulation they are facets of the life death life cycles baba yaga is not only asking vasilisa to separate this from that to know the difference between things of like kind such as real love from false love or nourishing life from spoiled life, but she is also asking her to distinguish one medicine from another. Like dreams which can be understood on the objective level, but still remain a subjective reality, these elements of food medicines also have symbolic guidances for us. Like Vasilisa, we have to sort out our psychic healing agents, to sort and sort and sort, to understand that food for the psyche is also medicine for the psyche and to wring the truth, the essence, out of these elements for our own nourishment. All these elements and tasks are teaching Vasilisa about the life-death-life nature 
and the give and take of caring for the wild nature. Sometimes in order to bring a woman closer to the life-death-life nature, I ask her to keep a garden. Let this be a psychic one, or one with mud, dirt, green and all the things that surround and help in a sale. Let it represent the wild psyche. The garden is a concrete connection to life and death. You could even say there is a religion of garden, for it teaches profound psychological and spiritual lessons. Whatever can happen to a garden can happen to soul and psyche. Too much water, too little water, bugs, heat, storm, flood, invasion, miracles, dying back, coming back, boon, healing. During the life of the garden, women keep a diary, recording the signs of life giving and life taking. Each entry cooks up a psychic soup. In the garden, we practice letting thoughts Ideas, preferences, desires, even loves, both live and die. We plant, we pull, we bury, we dry seed, sow it, support it. The garden is a meditation practice. That of saying when it is time for something to die. In the garden one can see the time coming for both fruition and for dying back. In the garden one is moving with rather than against the inhalations and exhalations of great wild nature. Through this meditation, we acknowledge that the life-death-life cycle is a natural one. Both wild woman's life-giving and death-dealing natures are waiting to be befriended, forever loved. In this process, we become like the cyclical wild. We have the ability to infuse energy and strengthen life and to stand out of the way of what dies. That's it for today, my friend. Be well. And so, here we are. Another winter evening in 2022 somewhere in some part of the world somebody is listening to this podcast to these stories and finding friendship finding intimacy finding care simply by the act of being attentive giving your attention to something that fills your soul, nourishes it as much as it does mine to read it and from this corner of the world say in my own way that you matter, I care, that we are seen and heard in this invisible anonymous connection. All right, so the seventh task on page 101 of Women Who Run With The Wolves. This is how Clarissa Pinkola Est explains the story and gives us layers of meaning and correlations. Beautifully written. The seventh task, Asking the Mysteries. After the successful completion of her tasks, Vasilisa asked the Yaga some good questions. The tasks of this time are these. 
questioning and trying to learn more about the life, death, life, nature and how it functions. Vasilisa asks about the horsemen. Learning the truth about being able to understand all the elements of the wild nature, to know too much can make one old too soon. We all begin with this question, what am I really? What is my work here? The yoga teaches us that we are life, death, life, that this is our cycle. This is our special insight into the deep feminine. When I was a child, one of my aunts told me the legend, the watery women. She said that at the edge of every lake there lived a young woman with old hands. Her first job was to put tuz, what I can only describe to you as soul fire, into dozens of beautiful porcelain ducks. Her second job was to wind the keys in the ducks' backs. When the wooden winding keys ran out and the ducks fell over, their bodies shattered. She was to flap her apron at the soles as they were released and shoo them into the sky. Her fourth job was to put tuz into some more beautiful porcelain ducks, wind their keys and release them to their lives. The tuz story is one of the clearest about exactly what it is, what is the life-death-life mother does with her time. Psychically, Mother Nix, Baba Yaga, the watery women, Lakyu Sebe, and wild women represent different pictures, different ages, moods, and aspects of the wild mother god. The infusion of tuz into our own ideas, our own lives, the lives of those we touch, that is our work. The shooing of the soul to its home, that is our work. The releasing, releasing of a shower of sparks to fill the day and creating a light we, so we can find our way through the night, that is our work. Vasilisa asks about the men on horses she has seen while finding her way to Baba Yaga's hut. The white man on the white horse, the red man on the red horse, the black man on the black horse. The Yaga, like Dimete, is an old horse mother goddess associated with the power of the mare and fecundity as well. Baba Yaga's hut is a stable for the many colored horses and their riders. These pairs pull the sun up and across the sky by day and pull the cover of darkness over the night at night, but there is more. The black, red and white horsemen symbolize the ancient colors of connoting birth, life and death. These colors also represent old ideas of descent, death and rebirth. The black for dissolving of one's old values. The red for the sacrifice of preciously held illusions. And the white as the new light, the new knowing that comes from having experienced the first two. The old words used in the medieval times are negredo, black, rubido, red, albedo, white. These describe an alchemy which follows the circuit of the wild woman, the work of the life-death-life mother. Without the symbols of daybreak, rising light and mysterious dark, she would not be who she is. 
without the rising of hope in our hearts without the steady light no matter if a candle or a sun to tell us this from that in our lives without a night from which all things can be soothed from which all things can be born we too would not benefit from our wildish natures the colors of the tale are extremely precious for each has its death nature and its life nature black is the color of mud the fertile the basic stuff into which ideas are sown yet black is the color also of death the blackening of light and black has even a third aspect it is also the color associated with that world between the worlds which la loba stands upon for black is the color of descent black is a promise that you will soon know something you did not know before red is the color of sacrifice of rage of murder of being killed yet red is also the color of vibrant life dynamic emotion arousal eros and desire it is a color that is considered strong medicine for psychic malaise a color which arouses appetite there is throughout the world a figure known as the red mother she is not as well known as the black mother or madonna but she is the watcher of things coming through she is especially propitiated by those who are about to give birth for whosoever leaves this world or comes into this world has to pass through her red river red is a promise that a rising up or a borning is soon to come <clears throat> white is the color of the new the pure the pristine it is also the color of soul free of the body of spirit and unencumbered by the physical it is the color of essential nourishment mother's milk conversely it is the color of the dead of things which have lost their rosiness their flush of vitality when there is white everything is for the moment tabula rasa unwritten upon why it is a promise that there is nourishment enough for things to begin anew besides the horsemen both vasilisa and her doll are dressed in red white and black as well vasilisa and her doll are the alchemical analgin together they cause vasilisa to be a little life death life mother in the coming there are two epiphanies or life givings in the story Vasilisa's life is revivified by the doll and by her meeting with the Baba Yaga and thereby through all the tasks she masters there are also two deaths in the story that of the original two good mother and also that of the step family yet we see easily that the deaths are proper and that they ultimately cause the girl a much fuller life so this letting live letting die is very important it is the basic and natural rhythm which women are meant to understand and live grasping this rhythm lessens fear for we anticipate the future and the ground swells and the emptying outs it all will hold the emptying outs it will hold the doll and the yaga are the wild mothers of all women they provide the penetrating intuitive gifts from the personal level as well as the divine This is the extreme paradox and teaching of the instinctual nature. It is a sort of wolf buddhism. What is one is both. What is two makes three. What lives shall die. What dies shall live.
This is what Baba Yaga means when she says, to know too much can make one old too soon. There is a certain amount we all should know at each age and each stage of our lives. In the tale, to know the meaning of the hands that appear and wring out the oil from the corn and the poppy seed, both life-giving and death-dealing medicines in and of themselves, is to ask to know too much. Vasilisa asked about the horses but not about the hands. When I was a young adult, I asked Bulgana Robonovich, an elderly teller from the Caucasus, who lived in a tiny Russian farm community in Minnesota, about the Baba Yaga. How did she see this part of the tale where Vasilisa just knows to stop asking questions? She looked at me with the lashless eyes of an old dog and said, Dairy are simply dairy are simply things which cannot be known. She smiled bewitchingly, crossed her thick ankles, and that was that. To try to understand the mystery of the appearing and disappearing servants who come in the form of hands is akin to trying to absolutely comprehend the core of the numinosum. By warning Vasilisa away from the question, the doll and the yaga caution Vasilisa about calling upon too much of the luminosity of the underworld all at once. And this is right and proper, for though we sit there, we do not want to become enraptured and thereby trapped there. It is another set of cycles the yaga alludes to here, cycles of a woman's life. As a woman lives them, she will understand more and more of these interior feminine rhythms, among them the rhythms of creativity, of birthing psychic babies and perhaps also human ones, the rhythms of solitude, of play, of rest, of sexuality and of the hunt. One need not push it, the understanding will come. Some things must be accepted as being out of our reach, even though they act upon us and we are enriched by them. There is a saying, some things are God's business. So by the end of these tasks, the legacy of the wild mothers is deepened and intuitive powers emanate from both the human and soulful sides of the psyche. Now we have the doll as teacher on one side and the Baba Yaga on the other. And that was the seventh task. The eighth task, standing on all fours, will come next. I hope you have enough food for your soul with what you've just heard. And it brings you rest, unconditional rest, deep, existential, divine rest, so you don't have to figure anything out and leave some things as God's business. Thank you. Be well, my friend. And welcome back. Let's begin with the eighth task, standing on all fours. Baba Yaga is repelled by Vasilisa's blessing from her dead mother and gives Vasilisa light, a fiery skull on a stick, and tells her to go. 
The tasks of this part of the tale are these. Taking on immense power to see and affect others, that is receiving the skull. Looking at one's life situations in this new light, that is finding the way back to the old step family. Is Baba Yaga repelled because Vasilisa has received her mother's blessing or rather is she just repelled by blessedness in general? Actually, not quite either. Considering the later Christian religious overlay, it would also appear that here the story has been shifted to make the Yaga seem afeard of Vasilisa's having been blessed, thereby fulfilling a newer religious proponent's desire to demonize this old wild mother from as far back in time as the Neolithic era with an eye to elevating the newer religion. The original word of the story might have been changed to blessing to encourage conversion, but I think the essence of original and archetypal meaning is still there. The issue of the mother's blessing can be interpreted this way. The Yaga is not repelled by the fact of the blessing, but is rather put off by the fact that the blessing is from the too good mother, the nice, the sweet, the darling of the psyche. If the Yaga is true to form, she would not care to be too close to, nor too, nor for too long near, the too confirming, too demure side of the feminine nature. Although the Yaga would blow life's breath into a mouse child with infinite tenderness, she would rather not be around sweetness and light too much. That attribute she leaves to the personal psyche. In this sense, she could be said to know well enough to stay on her own land. Her land is the underworld of the psyche. The two good mothers' land is that of the topside world. Although sweetness can fit into the wild, the wild cannot long fit into sweetness. When women integrate this aspect of the yaga, they change from accepting without question every tinker, every barb, every dadu, every everything that comes their way. To gain a little distance from the sweet blessing of the two good mother, a woman gradually learns to not just look, but to squint and to peer, and then more and more to suffer no fools. Having now, through serving the Yaga, created a capacity within herself which she did not have before, Vasilisa receives a portion of the wild hag goddess's power. Some women are afraid this deep knowing via instinct and intuition will cause them to be reckless or thoughtless, but this is an unfounded fear. Quite the contrary. Lack of intuition, lack of sensitivity to cycles or not following one's knowing causes choices which turn out poorly, even disastrously. More often this Yagayan kind of knowledge moves women to small in, by small increments and most often gives direction by giving clear pictures of what lies beneath or behind the motives, ideas, actions and words of others. If the instinctive psyche says beware, then the woman is pay heed. 
If the deep intuition says, do this, do that, go this way, stop here, go forward, the woman must make corrections to her plan as needed. Intuition is not to be consulted once and then forgotten. It is not disposable. It is to be consulted at all steps along the way, whether the woman's work be clashing with a demon in the interior or completing a task in the outer world. Now let us consider the skull with fiery light. It is a symbol from ancestral worship. In later archaeo-religious versions of the story, the skull, skulls on sticks are said to be those of humans whom the Yaga has killed and eaten. But in the older religions which practiced ancestral kinship, bones were recognized as the agents for calling the spirits, the skulls being the most salient part. In ancestral kinship, it is believed that the special and timeless knowledge of the old ones of the community lives on in their very bones after death. The skull is thought to be the dome which houses a powerful remnant of the departed soul, one which, if asked, can call the entire spirit of the dead person back for a time in order to be consulted. It is easy to imagine that the soul self lives right in the bony cathedral of the forehead, with the eyes as windows, mouth as doors and ears as the winds. So when the Yaga gives Vasilisa a lighted skull, she is giving her an old woman icon, an ancestral knower, to carry with her for life. She is initiating her into a matrilineal legacy of knowing, one which in the caves and canyons of the psyche remains whole and thriving. So off goes Vasilisa into the dark forest with her skull on a stick. She wandered about to get to the Yaga. Now she returns home, more, more sure, more certain, hips aimed straight ahead. This is the accent from the ascent from the initiation of deep intuition. Intuition has been set into Vasilisa like a center jewel in a crown. When a woman has come this far, she has managed to leave the protection of her own inner do-good mother, learn to accept and deal with adversity in the outer world in a powerful rather than complicit manner. She has become aware of her own shadowy and inhibitory stepmother and stepsisters and the destruction they mean to do to her. She has negotiated through the dark listening to her inner voice and has been able to stand the face of the hag, which is a side of her own nature, but also the powerful wild woman nature. Thus she is enabled to understand awesome and conscious power, her own and that of others. No more, but I'm afraid of him, her, it. She has served the hag goddess of the psyche, fed the relationship, purified the personae, kept clear thinking. She has gotten to know this wild feminine force and its habits. She has learned to differentiate, to separate thought from feelings. She has learned to recognize the wild power in her own psyche. She has learned about life, death, life and women's gift about it all. With this newly acquired yaga skill, she need not lack in confidence or potency anymore. 
having been given the legacy of the mother's intuition from the human side of her nature and a wild knowing from the Larkius Bay side of the psyche, she is well enabled. She goes forward in life, feet placed surely one after the other, womanly. She has coalesced all her power and sees the world now and her life through this new light. Let us see what happens when a woman becomes be, when a woman behaves thusly. <laughs> and it's getting so exciting that I must read the ninth task immediately. Recasting the Shadow Vasilisa journeys toward home with the fiery skull on the stick. She almost throws it away, but the skull reassures her. Once back home, the skull watches the stepsisters and stepmother and burns them to ashes. Vasilisa lives well and for a long time afterward. These are the psychic tasks of this time. Using one's acute vision, fiery eyes, to recognize and react to the negative shadow of one's own psyche and or negative aspects of persons and events in the outer world. Recasting the negative shadows in one's psyche with Hagfire, the wicked stepfamily which formerly tortured Vasilisa is turned to cinders. <coughs> Vasilisa has the fiery skull on a stick held before her as she walks through the forest and a doll indicates the way back. Go this way now. This way. Vasilisa, who used to be a blueberry-eyed sweet muffin, is now a woman walking with her power before her. A fiery light emanates from the eyes, ears and nose and mouth of the skull. It is the representation of all the psychic processes which have to do with discrimination. It is related to ancestor kinship and therefore to remembering if the Yaga had given Vasilisa a knee bone or a stick that would require a different symbolic rendering. If she had given her a wrist bone, a neck bone or any other bone other than perhaps the female pelvis, it would not mean the same thing. So the skull is another representation of intuition. It does not hurt the Yaga or Vasilisa. It has a discrimination of its own. Vasilisa now carries the place of knowing. She has those fierce senses. She can hear, see, smell and taste them out. And she has her self. She has the doll. She has Yaga sensibilities. Now she has the fiery skull as well. <clears throat> Momentarily, Vasilisa becomes afraid of the power she carries and she thinks to throw the fiery skull away. With this formidable power at her behest, it is no wonder her ego thinks perhaps it would be better, easier, safer to discard this burning light, for it is so much, and through it Vasilisa has become so much. But a supernatural voice from the skull instructs her to stay calm and to proceed, and this she is able to do. 
each woman who retrieves her intuition and yaga like powers reaches a point where she is tempted to throw them away for what is the use of seeing and knowing all these things this kal light is not forgiving is not forgiving in its light the old are elderly the beautiful lush the silly foolish the drunk drunk are drunken the unfaithful are infidels things which are incredible are noted as miracles skull light sees what is sees it is an eternal light <clears throat> i would like to repeat this is absolutely gorgeous insight this skull light is not forgiving in its light the old are elderly the beautiful lush the silly foolish the drunk are drunken the unfaithful are infidels things which are incredible are noted as miracles skull light sees what it sees it is an eternal light and right out front shining ahead of a woman like a presence which goes a little bit before her and reports back to her what it has found ahead it is a perpetual reconnaissance yet when one sees and senses thusly then one has to work to, has to work to do something about what one sees to possess good intuition goodly power causes work it causes work firstly in the watching and and comprehending of negative forces and imbalances both inward and outward secondly it causes striving in the gathering up of will in order to do something about what one sees be it for good or balance or to allow something to die it is true i will not lie to you it is easier to throw away the light and go to sleep it is true it is hard to hold the skull light out before us sometimes for with it we clearly see all sides of ourselves and others both the disfigured and the divine and all conditions in between yet when this light with this light the miracles of deep beauty in the world and in humans come to consciousness with this penetrating light one can see past the bad action to the good heart one can epsi espy the sweet spirit crushed beneath hatred one can understand much instead of being perplexed only <coughs> this light can differentiate layers of personality personality intention and motives in others it can determine consciousness and unconsciousness in self and others it is the wand of knowing it is a mirror in which all things are sensed it is the deep wild nature yet there are times when it reports its reports are painful and almost too much to bear for also the fiery skull points out where there are betrayals brewing where there is faintness of courage in those who speak otherwise it points out envy lying like cold grease behind a warm smile it points out the looks which are mere masks for dislike as regards oneself its light is equally bright it shines on our treasures and on our foibles 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 <laughs> Sorry about that but I just had to read this chapter couldn't fall asleep till I had read it
In fact, it woke me up that if you don't read me, I'm not going to let you sleep. So it pushed me out of bed again. It is these knowings which are the most difficult to face. It is at this point that we always want to throw away all this damnable shrewd knowing of ours. If here, it is here that we feel if we will not ignore it, a strong force from the self saying, do not throw me away, keep me, you'll see. As Vasilisa weaves through the forest, she no doubt is thinking too about the step-family which had maliciously sent her off to die. And though she herself is sweet of heart, the skull is not sweet. Its work is to be sightful. So when she wishes to toss it away, we know that she's thinking of the pain it causes to know some things and certain things about self, about others, about the nature of the world. She arrives home and the stepmother and stepsisters tell her they had no fire, no energy while she was away, that no matter what they did, they could not make light. And this is the exact truth in any woman's psyche when she is in her wildish power. During that time, the things which have oppressed her have no libido. It is all taken up in the good journey. Without libido, the nastier aspects of the psyche, those which exploit the creative life of a woman or encourage her to while away her life in minutiae, these become like gloves with no hands in them. The fiery skull begins to peer at the stepsisters and stepmother, watches and watches them intently. Can the negative aspect of psyche be reduced to cinder by being watched and watched? Of course, yes. Yes, indeed, it can. Holding it in consistent consciousness can cause the thing to dehydrate. In one version of the tale, The errant family members are burned to a crisp. In another version, the three small to three small black cinders. The three small black cinders hold a very old and interesting idea. The little black dit or dot is often thought of as the beginning of life. In the Old Testament, when that God made first man and first woman, He fashioned them from earth, dirt, mud, depending on which translation one reads. Just how much earth? No one knows. But among other creation stories, the beginning of the world and of its inhabitants is often made from the dit, from one grain, one single tiny dot of something. In this manner, the three small cinders are in the province of the life-death-life-mother. They are reduced down almost to nothing in the psyche. They are deprived of libido. Now something new can occur. In most cases, when we consciously deprive a psychic thing of juice, it shrivels and its energy is released or reconfigured. There is another side to this draining of the destructive step-family. One cannot keep the consciousness one has earned by meeting the hag goddess and carrying the fiery light and so forth. If one lives with cruel people outwardly or inwardly, 
if you're surrounded by people who cross their eyes and look with disgust up at the ceiling when you're in the room, when you speak, when you act and react, then you are with people who douse passion, yours and probably their own as well. These are not the people who care about you, your work or your life. Hmm, one must pause to take this in, right? A woman must choose her friends and lovers wisely. For both can become like a bad stepmother and rotten stepsisters. In the case of our lovers, we often invest them with the power of a great mage, a great magician. This is easy to do, for we, if we become truly intimate, it is like unlocking a lead crystal atelier, a magic one, or so it feels to us. A lover can engender and or destroy even our most durable connections to our own cycles and ideas. The destructive lover must be avoided. A better sort of lover is one finely wrought of strong psychic muscle and tender flesh. For wild woman, it also helps if the lover is just a little bit psychic too. A person who can see into her heart. When the wildish woman has an idea, the friend or lover will never say, Well, I don't know, sounds really dumb, grandiose, undoable, expensive, etc. to me. A right friend will never say that. They might say instead, I don't know if I understand, tell me how you see it, tell me how it will work. Mm-hmm. Underline that. Having a lover or friend who regards you as a living, growing creature, just as much as the tree from the ground or a ficus in the house or a rose garden out in the side yard, having a lover and friends who look at you as a true, living, breathing entity, one that is human but made of very fine and moist and magical things as well, a lover and friends who support the creature in you, these are the people you're looking for. They will be the friends of your soul for life. Mindful choosing of friends and lovers, not to mention teachers, is critical to remaining conscious, remaining intuitive, remaining in charge of the fiery light that sees and knows. The way to maintain one's connection to the wild is to ask yourself what it is that you want. <coughs> This is the sorting of the seed from the dirt. One of the most important discriminations we can make in this matter is the difference between things that beckon to us and things that call from our souls. This is how it works. Imagine a smorgasbord laid out with whipped cream and salmon and bagels and roast beef and fruit salad and green enchiladas and rice and curry and yogurt and many, many things for the table, after table, after table. Imagine that you survey it all and that you see certain things that appeal to you. You remark to yourselves, Oh, I would really like to have one of those and one of that and some of this other thing. Some women and men make all their life decisions in this way. 
This is around and about us a constant beckoning world, one which insinuates itself into our lives, arousing and creating appetite where there was little or none before. In this sort of choice we choose a thing because it just happened to be beneath our noses at that moment in time. It is not necessarily what we want, but it is interesting and the longer we gaze at it, the more compelling it becomes. Mm-hmm. When we are connected to the instinctual self, to the soul of the feminine, which is natural and wild, then instead of looking over whatever happens to be on display, we say to ourselves, what am I hungry for? Without looking at anything outwardly, we venture inward and ask, what do I long for? What do I wish for now? Alternate phrases are, What do I crave? What do I desire? For what do I yearn? Very, very, very important lines. And the answer usually arrives rapidly. Oh, I think I want, you know, what would be really good? Is this, is some of this or that? Oh yes, that's what I really want. Is that on the smoker's board? Maybe yes and maybe no. In most cases, probably not. We will have to quest for it a little bit. Sometimes for a considerable time. But in the end, we shall find it. And be glad we took soundings about our deeper longings. This discrimination which Vasilisa learns as she separates poppy seeds from dirt and mildewed corn from fresh corn is one of the most difficult things to learn for it takes spirit, will and soulfulness and it often means holding out for what one wants. Nowhere can this be seen more clearly than in the choice of mates and lovers. A lover cannot be chosen a la smorgasbord. A lover has to be chosen from soul craving. To choose just because something mouth-watering stands before you will never satisfy the hunger of the soul self. And that is what intuition is for. It is a direct messenger of the soul. To amplify further, if you are presented with an opportunity to buy a bicycle or an opportunity to travel to Egypt and to see the pyramids, you have to... Set the opportunity aside for the moment. Enter into yourself and ask, what am I hungry for? What do I long for? Maybe I'm hungry for a motorcycle instead of a bicycle. Maybe I'm hungry for a trip to see my grandmother who's coming up in years. The decisions do not have to be so large. Sometimes the matter to be weighed is taking a walk versus making a poem. Momentous or mundane, the idea is to have consulted the instinctual self through one or several aspects available to you. The doll self, the old Baba Yaga self, the fiery skull. Another way to strengthen connection to intuition is to refuse to allow oneself to repress our vivid energies. That means your opinions, your thoughts, your ideas, your values, your morals, your ideals. There is very little right, wrong or good, bad in this world. There is however useful and not useful. 
There are also things that are sometimes destructive as well as things which are engendering. But as, we, as you well know, a garden has to be turned in the fall in order to prepare it for the spring. It cannot bloom all the time. But let your own innate cycles dictate the upsurges and the down spirals of your life, not another person outside yourself. <clears throat> There are certain constant entropies and creatings which are a part of our inner cycles. It is our task to synchronize with them, like the chambers of a heart which fill and empty and fill again. We learn to learn the rhythm of this life-death life cycle instead of becoming martyred by it. Liken it to jump rope. The rhythm already exists. You sway back and forth until you are coping, copying the rhythm. Then you jump in. That's how it is done. It is no more fancy than that. Further, intuition provides options. When you are connected to the instinctual self, you always have at least four choices. The two opposites and then the middle ground and taken under further contemplation. So the two opposites, the middle ground and taken under further contemplation. Four choices. If you are vested in the intuitive, you may think you only have one choice and often that is an undesirable one. And you feel that you should suffer about it and submit and force yourself to do it. No, there's a better way. Listen to the inner hearing, the inner seeing, the inner being. Follow it. It knows what to do next. One of the most remarkable things about using intuition and the instinctive nature is that it causes a sure-footed spontaneity to erupt. Spontaneity doesn't mean being unwise. It is not a pounce and blurt attribute. Good boundaries are still important. Scherzade, for instance, had pretty good boundaries. She used her cleverness to please while at the same time positioning herself to be valued. Mm -hmm. Being real doesn't mean being reckless. It means allowing Lavo's mythologica, the mythological voice, to speak. One does that by shutting off the ego for a while and letting that which wishes to speak, speak. In the consensual reality, we all have access to little wild mothers in the flesh. These are women who, as soon as you see them, something in you leaps and something in you thinks, Mama! You take one look and think, I am her progeny, I am her child, she is my mother, my grandmother. In the case of hombre con pechos, a man with breasts, you think, Oh, grandfather, oh, my brother, my friend. You just know that this man is nurturing. Paradoxically, they are strong masculine and strong feminine at the same time. They are like fairy godmother, like mentor, like the mother you never had or did not have long enough. That is an hombre con pechos. All these human beings could be called little wild mothers. Usually everyone has at least one. If we are lucky throughout a lifetime, we will have several. 
you are usually grown or at least in your late adolescence by the time you meet them. They are vastly different from the two good mother. The wild little wild mothers guide you, burst with pride over your accomplishments. They are critical of blockages around your creative, sensual, spiritual and intellectual life. Their purpose is to help you, to care about your art and to reattach you to the wildish instincts. They guide the restoration of the intuitive life and they are thrilled when you make contact with the doll, proud when you find the Baba Yaga and rejoicing when they see you coming back with the fiery skull held out before you. We have seen that to be dumb and too sweet is dangerous, but perhaps you still are not convinced. Perhaps you are thinking, oh lordy, who wants to be like Vasilisa? And I'm telling you, you do. You want to be like her, accomplish what she has accomplished and follow the trail she has left with her passing. For it is the way of retaining and developing your soul. Because the wild woman is the one who dares and who creates and who destroys. She is the primitive and inventive soul that makes all creative acts and arts possible. She creates a forest around us and we begin to deal with life from that fresh and original perspective. So here at the end of the resetting of initiation into the feminine psyche, we have a young woman with formidable experiences who has learned to follow her knowing. She has endured through all the tasks to a full initiation. The crown is hers. Perhaps intuition is the easier of the tasks, but holding it in consciousness and letting live what can live and letting die what must die is by far more strenuous yet so satisfying. Baba Yaga is the name, is the same as Mother Nix, the mother of the world, another life-death-life goddess. The life-death-life goddess is always also a creator goddess. She makes fashions, breathes life into, she she is there to receive the soul when the breath has run out. Following her footprints, we endeavor to learn to be born what must be born. To learn to let be born what must be born, whether all the right people are there or not. Nature does not ask permission. Blossom and birth whenever you feel like it. As adults, we need little permission, but rather more engendering, much more encouraging from the wild cycles, of the wild cycles. To let things die is the theme at the end of the tale. Vasilisa has learned well. Does she collapse into a fit of high-pitched shrieking as the skull burns into the malicious ones? No. What must die, dies. How does one make such a decision? One knows. La Cusabe knows. Ask within for her advice. She is the mother of the ages. Nothing surprises her. She has seen it all. For most women, to let die is not against their natures. It is only against their training. This can be reversed. We all know in loss ovarios when it is time for life, when it is time for death. We might try to fool ourselves for various reasons, but we know. By the light of the fiery skull, we know. And that, my friends, is the end of the chapter 
3 the entire story of vasilisa and her doll and baba yaga and all the explanation <clears throat> spanning nine chapters by the wonderful and gorgeous clarissa pinkula est i hope you enjoyed this reading it has given you much soul food and connected you to your own instinctual self. I do believe that just merely listening to, to lived uh, thoughts that are lived and are full of life still, that itself causes ripple effects of change within us and we, we come in touch with what we need to. Just like that, by paying attention fully to the tale, to the story and absorbing it. So I hope you've had an enriching time and you're engendering much to encourage your own wild cycles. I'll see you in Chapter 6, The White Mage, Union with the Other. It's a beautiful tale of the wild man Manawi. So long, my friends. Be well.